The vacation is over. Officially over. It's time to get back to work. Hot shot, Scott. Some vacation. Seeing you twice in the vacation week on this. When did you see me in the vacation week? I saw you at the park for our meeting. That was the Sunday we were supposed to have off. First of all, we need to (laughs) hold on a second because it's a little unclear when the vacation actually is. Oh, it is. Okay. We need to define when was the vacation from when to when. Well, typically a vacation means you don't work. You know, you don't come into work the days you typically work. Yes. But we typically record this on a Sunday, but then I went to Redmond and met you and Steve when on a day we didn't have yeah, a show. Yeah, but you have to you have to define for me because I just did. I have been working on this show, the one that we're going to record right now, yeah, yeah. episode 103 for the last 2 or 3 days with interviews oh, okay. because I always interview people leading up to when I see you. Yeah. So I guess those aren't vacation days. So the vacation really starts not last Sunday. It starts after we finish 102P on that Wednesday night. Oh, I because see. Because then I don't have to record interviews on that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Right. But then I have to start getting ready for this show. So the vacation for me, maybe the vacation for you is different dates than the vacation for me. I think is that is. A, did I confuse anybody with that? Uh, more, more I'm than, trying to. Yeah, most likely you did, but I'm, I'm following I don't know if you. anybody understands what we did. So when did I see you? I saw you for a... A beer at Marymore Park Correct. for the big show meeting yep. that we decided that, hey, what, what did we decide I, in that show meeting? It's not clear, really, is it? I'm not really sure. No, a few that things. That we should be doing something with, like, uh, Amazon. Yeah, that's one of them. But I think uh, getting me a home set up, so we, we sorted that out. Yeah. Right? That was decent. And we tried it. Yeah, yeah. But we weren't supposed to do a show. Was that one? Oh, was that a special show? That was a special show. Yeah, that was like- For patrons. The day after. Well, that was, yeah, we recorded- It was a surprise show for patrons. Yes, it came out the day that we weren't supposed to do a show because we were on vacation, so we right. did one anyway. <laughs> yeah, we did one anyway because you found old equipment in your garage yes. from an old podcast that you used to do. Yep. And you decided, and I asked you, could you hook that into Skype instead of doing the cell phone thing when you're at your home and I'm here? You said, yeah, I could probably hook the mixer up, put the microphone up, yep. throw it into Skype, and then we could do a Skype call. And we were, we were anxious to hear what it would sound like. And we even challenge the patrons who pay the $5 a month to listen to that and tell us how they they thought it sounded. Now, your ear is better than their ear because you're listening. You're probably more particular about what you're listening to. Especially my own voice, yeah. I probably got, I don't know, 500 emails minus 490. So about 10 emails. (laughs) Okay, good. I got more than that. (laughs) I got a lot of reaction from the patrons that actually sat down and listened to our surprise show. We talked about my Leavenworth trip. We talked about Pat O'Day losing Pat O'Day. And we talked about your new hookup. And I challenged people. Oh, my new setup at home. Sorry, I was thinking women. I was like, wow, I didn't know that was happening. But go on. What a vacation you had. (laughs) Right. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, so we talked about Pat O'Day and the, the home thing. And yeah. Yeah, I was. I'm now, I'm now off track. Well, you got me off track. I, I, and and we were anxious to hear how right. or see how it was going to sound. If and I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I still want you across from me like you are today for the P episodes. This is not a way for you to be lazy, <laughs> but there may come a time where you have something going on at home that you can't get away for. Or me, even more importantly, I'd like to start doing. A show here, a 10 minutes, a 15 minutes, a 20 minutes, a 5 minutes, an 8 minutes. Yeah. Just little little tidbit show, little segment shows, stream of consciousness shows of something that's going on where it's not a Sunday or a Wednesday night where you're at home so you don't have to come over here. Something that may not sound this good but sound close. And everybody who emailed me, all 
five yeah. uh, <laughs> who emailed me said and who tweeted said it was a range from very good, not as good as you guys being together, but better than the phone. That was the low end of the of the commentary. Oh, okay. And then the high end, and I got several of them, were I would not have known had you guys not told me that Hotshot was not with you. I don't think I would have known. So it ranged wow. it ranged from much better than phone, not quite as good as this, yeah. to as good as this. We didn't even know until you started to say something. Well, that's good news, I that's guess. Been, that was the reaction of the patrons who who listened to the surprise show. I felt I was a little muffled. I didn't like my settings on my mic, but I do have a little EQ. I can tweak it and make it a little better. I, Could it be the mic? Could it be Skype? I told you I'm willing to buy another one of these. Yeah. Send it over to your house. So you've got essentially the exact same. I mean, I don't think your mixer needs to be the exact same mixer. Nah. It's just a mixer. Yeah. So if I sent you the mic from here over there, would that change anything? Or is the problem that it's through Skype and it's not exactly going into the same mix? I think the problem is I need to put a little more high. because there's A little more high. I you need to get high. I, I, for sure. But <laughs> there is an equalizer on there, so I can tweak the level. So I want to try yeah. that first. I, I think it'll work. How do we handle the stuff that we talked about in the surprise patron show oh. for this show, this right. episode 103, as we're about to begin? Do we ignore it and just say, all right, we already spoke about Pat O'Day. We already talked about me jumping into the rapids at Leavenworth, <laughs> even though you thought that was Max. Couldn't believe Max. that was you. But okay, it was really Max. <laughs> I'm sure it, that <laughs> no, makes sense. Now I can sleep. <laughs> people are mad at me because I did it with a hat on. Now I'm getting, it's that whole thing. What do you mean, like people, a baseball cap or yeah, a helmet? A baseball cap. Why are they mad at you? Well, people are like, what are you, what are you swimming with a baseball cap on for? It's, it's that whole thing that we talked about at Marymore Park yeah. where you send out a picture and people respond to particulars in the picture that had nothing to do with the reason why you sent it out. Yeah, they focus they find on the wrong little, thing. Yeah. They found a little thing. Ugh. Like if I send a picture out of this setup of you and I, episode 103, yeah. somebody will say, Oh, caffeine-free Coke. Is, that, can't a, caffeine? is that a big pen you got there <laughs> yeah, on the table? And I'm like, stop it. Yeah, I know. Just it, stop it. People we love it. We didn't send the picture for the big pen. Why are you using such a terrible big pen? You should use something, you know. Never ends. I'm so scared of sending a picture in my house. <laughs> someone's going to rip it. Oh, you, you should sweep a little more over there. It's going to be something, you It's know. like, that's not why I sent it. I, I wanted you to see something else. And, yeah. you're, and you're like, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm convinced people need to like blow up oh, the picture. Everyone's expand on, the picture yeah. so they can see like in the corners of your room. That's right. Everyone's a it detective. It drives me crazy. Yeah, everyone's on CSI now, blowing things up, looking, yeah. Do you want to do anything on Pat O'Day on this show? Do you want to make any comments? about Pat O'Day or I mean we told the stories all the uh, stories of Pat O'Day yeah I mean I think we should mention a little bit for everybody how much we well at least I loved him I thought he was a legend and anytime I was with him I never took that you for better granted. tell people in Chicago and St. Louis because this is what Mary Moore Park was all about yeah well you want to go national you want to blow this thing up to be that's right huge in Paris yes people in Paris don't know who Pat O'Day is or was well i will tell them he was a <laughs> legendary rock and roll hall of fame dj that's a bad accent really is that that's yeah, not french no. okay it may be um, hall of, he was a hall of fame radio dj yeah from seattle he yeah. essentially brought rock and roll to seattle yeah. and he started his own promotion company so any band or act that came not only would he play them on the radio but then yeah. he would he was like their their tour guide around town he he has stories about robert plant the lead singer of led zeppelin losing a ring under the stage <laughs> And was really upset about it. So after the show, Pat's crawling around on all fours looking for Robert Plant's freaking ring, finds it, and, says, and then says, 
By the way, he goes, next time I saw him, like, they, you know, next time we were out on my boat and I presented him the ring and, and Robert teared up. Like Robert Plant is a legend, you know? Well, none of us are exactly sure <laughs> the level of credibility to these to these these stories are outrageous. Yeah. I told the Frank Sinatra story to the patrons on our surprise show. I'm not gonna go through that again. But he's got he's pictures. Got, he's, he's got, got amazing, amazing yeah. story. I saw a picture of of the band The Who. They look twenty. They're eating Kentucky fried chicken in his backyard before a gig. <laughs> I swear to you. Roger Daltrey sitting right there that eating chicken day. in his backyard. He's that, he has that kind of story. And I think story. later in life, he was a real estate agent, wasn't he? Yeah, he moved to the San Juans. <laughs> and it's a, not a, not a bad rock life. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Rock right? and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah. Like have, you, have you ever been to the Rock and Roll Hall I of Fame? Haven't. I haven't. It's I would in love Cleveland. To. Yeah, exactly. It's a little out of the way. When, when do you get there? Yeah. No, I haven't. But he has a. He told me a story about playing cards with Casey Kasem oh. in L.A. Just that's the world he lived in. He was a legend, oh. a legend, and he was always we'll miss him. very nice to the KJR AM people. Even yeah. though it was sports radio, I always loved that about him. He never held a grudge or thought, yeah. what, are you, "What are you doing sports talk for on the station I built?" He was always yeah. very nice to everyone. What are we doing about Mitch Unfilter? What are we doing about a fantasy football league this year? You're going to do your fantasy. You're not a fantasy. Are you a fantasy football? That's right. You quit. I had a bad experience. You had a bad experience, like Jimmy Shapiro or something. He's part of it. Yes. <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> Wake Shapiro. He was, he was part of it. Ruined it for life. Him and an- another guy, you know, too. I re- oh, really? Yeah, he worked in the building. I think he was KJR FM Sales, maybe. Uh, Tall guy named I David. I don't know. Okay, well, I don't want to say his last name. You don't want to say his last dick. name. My, my guys I'd known a long time were just complete a holes to me. I want to do a over fantasy. I want to do a Mitch Unfiltered Fantasy Football League. All right. Like on Zoom or something with with patrons or non-patrons yeah. or just listeners. I want to put together a couple of leagues or a league, and I don't know how to go about doing that. I don't yeah. know how to pick. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would like to do it. Maybe we can raise money for charity. Right. I don't know. Yeah, we did there's it There's got to be an idea in there somewhere. It's already August. Well, we're recording this on August 9th. We're releasing this on August 10th. Yeah. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty. We're, the NFL season's coming. I, I'm assuming... That the, and we'll talk about college football. I'm assuming college football is not going to get played, and I'm assuming that the NFL is going to get played on some level. And fantasy football can't be far behind. And I want to do something with our Mitch Unfiltered listeners. Yeah, no, I don't I, know what that is. People loved it. We did it last year, and I thought people loved it. We had a big fun draft party, so I think there's yeah, interest. We did it. There's got to be some yeah. some idea in there. Maybe if you're listening right now and you can come up with an idea. Hey, do the work for us. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we like. <laughs> Send me a note to Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com. By the way, subscribe, listen, and give us a five-star rating if it's in your heart. We want you to uh, follow follow along. You can become an aforementioned Mitch Unfiltered patron for five bucks a month. Yes. That's what it is. Five dollars a month, and you get access to all the non- Monday shows. So the Monday shows come out to free for everybody. And then we do, we've been doing some Rick Fair golf tips. We do a whole show on Thursday. We did a surprise show last week. Yep. We're talking about using your new setup to do a, a show, a quick show here and there about things that are happening, either sports or non sports. You did like a gambling show during football last week. We did season. a gambling yeah. show. So if you'd like, I mean, it's $5 a month, you get all of that. Right. And by the way, when you spend the $5 a month, I think you get access to the entire library that you miss. It's not like you start from when you become a member. Oh, gotcha. I yeah. think it opens everything up that's ever been. So you can go back and listen to every become page. Become a Mitch I know it's probably not the right time yeah. for me to be asking people to spend $5. It's maybe not very sensitive of me, but it's 5 bucks. People are still buying coffee. They're still going to Starbucks. Yep. They're still 
spending five dollars on whatever you spend five dollars on. So that's what you can do. Half Become of a, a Mitch unfiltered. Half of a movie ticket you're not going to. Right, no movies. <laughs> That's right. No movies. <laughs> we'll be your movie. Uh, let's talk about the guests here on episode 103. There'll be three of them. Okay. Not quite sure who they're going to be. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. I just kind of took you behind the curtain. The number, guest number one. If okay. I said to you, you know the answer to this because you know who's going to be on, but I wonder if you would have gotten this correct three weeks ago. Had three weeks ago, I said to you, who's the greatest winter United States Olympian of all time. If I had asked you that three or four weeks ago. Yeah. Because we don't do well in the Winter Olympics, right? Correct. It's the skiing. It's the cold stuff. Right. We I don't mean, do well in the cold stuff. We even had Herschel you know, Walker on the bobsled team, and <laughs> that didn't help us. We thought it would. <laughs> Remember he did that? Yes. <laughs> really, it's actually not the worst guy. to. Oh, you do God. need that speed Remember at the beginning. He was, oh, man. Enormous. <laughs> Just freak of nature. Yeah, we're not really good. It's not like – I mean, we've got all kinds of Michael Phelps and – Lots of huge winners in the, yeah. well, the LeBron summer. James, those Olympics. kinds of players. I mean, the, the summer NBA, Olympics. We yeah. got guys that have won twenty medals. I don't. I don't know how many that uh, Michael Phelps has. But who would be the greatest American winter Olympian? Yeah, I. I mean, I'm familiar with him because he's local, so I probably would have gone there. I know Christy Yamaguchi comes to mind. Maybe oh, she was. Yamaguchi. She was pretty good, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it would be Apollo Ono. Eight medals. That's impressive. I believe. Eight medals. <laughs> okay. Good enough. Federal Way, Washington. Believe it or not, the greatest winter Olympian in United States history comes from Federal, Fetty Way, Washington. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, I used to have him on every once in a while on the old radio show, not very often. And I thought, hey, let me see what the hell he's doing. And that that documentary, I don't know if you've seen it. I've watched it on HBO. I have you watched the I documentary? Yet, but the it, Weight of Gold, you should watch it. It's on my list. It's on my list. It's I, a hard one. It's a hard hour. Is it? Yeah, it's a difficult right. hour. Uh, the Weight of Gold kind of chronicles the mental illness of our Olympic athletes after they're finished and it's all over, what to do now, yeah. and the depression that sets in. So Apollo Ono and his eight medals, not all gold, eight medals, is going to be with us on episode 103. He will be guest number one. I would have gone with Tanya Harding, maybe. That would be my, my first. What's the latest on uh, Mr. Mr. Producer? Have you offered? Have you heard back? I reached out through her website, yeah. and I said, we spent a few days together when you co-hosted at Cube 93. Oh, you shouldn't have said that, well, because that's the reason why she's not going to call me. Oh, is that right? I, I thought, that, I, thought I, I had an in. I thought that was my in. No? I don't know. It depends on how she views those few those few days. <laughs> That's true. I did take her to my mom's house. She met my mom. So Maybe I, she's nice still time. pissed that you didn't come up to the hotel room with you. Now she's not returning your phone call for your your pot your little podcast. One of yeah. many women from that time that I'm sure are pissed that I you know didn't give them the time of day. So she can just get in line. So Olympian Apollo Ono, guest number two, a guy by the name of Mark Ziegler. He's a He's a columnist for the San Diego Union Tribune who wrote a very kind of spirited piece on what the Pac-12 should say to the Pac-12 football players that are threatening not to play. Now, I don't think they're going to play anyway. Yeah. I don't think anybody's going to play. We'll start with that in, in segment number one. But he has he's, – he's heard enough. Essentially, Mark Ziegler's heard enough. Okay. Heard enough from players and athletes and – student athletes that want 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 he's heard enough and he wrote a column and he spent the weekend at the first major in forever the pga championship on the pga tour oh so you're getting a, a twofer we're getting him. a twofer nice. with mark ziegler and then the third guest is all about you okay yeah hot shot scott 
demanded that we spend some time on the subject of Joseph James D'Angelo. Tell everybody in our audience who Joseph James D'Angelo is. He's been in my head for like two weeks. I know weeks. he has. I, I can't. So much so that we've got to like do a podcast segment to get him out of your head. No, really. To put him onto the podcast. Like, I, I can't stop thinking about this case. <laughs> it's the most fascinating story to me ever. Tell everybody who he is. So he's known as the original Golden State Killer. The Golden State Killer. Now, we're yes. not talking about like the Sacramento Kings or the L.A. Clippers. Correct. Steph We're Curry talking, hasn't killed anybody. We're talking about a basketball guy. We're yes. talking about the Golden State Killer who was known as something else in two or three other serial sets of, of crimes, right? He started out as uh, the East... Well, he was something before... Uh, he was called the Something Ransacker, mm-hmm. and then he moved into the East Area Rapist, <laughs> and then he was called the Zodiac Killer, but there was already a guy, Richard Ramirez, who's the Zodiac Killer who got national attention. This story's fascinating because... He had 50 rapes under his belt, not, no pun intended. Yeah. He, he was this pure evil, and then yeah. he started murdering, but yet people didn't really know about him. You know, you've heard of Son of Sam and Ted Bundy and all these big names, and not only was I intrigued, but Patton Oswalt's wife is a crime writer. She got See, in- I don't even know who Patton Oswalt is. Well, he's a comic and yeah. an actor, and yeah. he's the voice people of Ratatouille, if you ever saw Ratatouille. Yeah. Cartoon. No, anyway, no. His wife, she was a crime writer. Michelle McNamara. Correct. So she, she sort of brought attention to this guy lately. So this guy, this guy committed countless burglaries, 50 rapes, yep. at least 13 murders. At least, yes. From 1973 to 1986, over a 13-year period. Correct. And they couldn't find, they never caught him. Cold case. And he became, he ended up becoming an officer, a police officer. Crazy. Right. And it, and just outmaneuvered everybody and lived a normal life. And from 1986 until 2018, so do the math on that, 32 years, yeah. he was just living living life. He He's, stopped, apparently he stopped doing all this stuff in 1986. And then he became a father, a grandfather, or right. whatever. And he just lived a, a simple life. And then 2018, they finally nabbed him thanks to... Michelle McNamara, who brought the case back into the limelight with a book. She's a crime writer. And then when she was doing it, there was a guy in Florida, Paul Haynes. You want to tell everybody who Paul Haynes is? Yeah. So Paul Haynes was also obsessed with this whole guy. He would go on Michelle. Michelle wrote a blog or, you know, she had a website. So he read everything she put out and then he started contacting her. Hey, I'm I'm into this too. And they started, they they built a, a relationship and a real trust. So he ended up moving to LA to become her researcher for the book. Correct. So no one knows more about this case than Paul Haynes. So each of them were trying to figure out 30 years later, who is this guy and is he still alive and can we get him? They right. were doing it coast to coast. And then he he was in Miami. She was in California. He moves out to California. She dies tragically in the middle of writing the book. Yeah, towards br- the end. Yeah, br- bringing, this, bringing this to the limelight. And he, Paul Haynes, and some others helped finish the book. That's right. And as a result of all of that, they get the guy after all these years. He's like 70-something years old. He's like 73. They find him. They get him. They arrest him. He admits to everything. He admits to everything. Yeah. And it's 40 years later. Right. And he just had a he just had his hearing maybe a week ago or so where he just, guilty, I'm guilty, all yeah. 13 counts. He pled guilty to try, I don't know. I, I, there's yeah. a technicality. I don't think they have, they don't have capital punishment in California, but there was a reason, there was a legal reason why he did plead guilty to all of these things. And and so Paul Haynes is guest number three. Love He's going to tell us the whole story. I can't wait. And you said to us in Marymore Park, listen, <laughs> I'm done. 
I'm done on Mitch Unfiltered. Right. If you don't, if you don't dedicate a segment to this, right. I'm done. So we're having Paul Haynes on Thank you. to discuss his fascination, his relationship with her, his finishing the book, his reaction when they heard when he heard they finally got the guy after Crazy. all these years. Yeah. And uh, Paul Haynes will be on episode 103. And for those that don't know, there is a book by Michelle. It shot to number one after it was completed. People were loving it. And then right. HBO did a five-part miniseries right. if you want right. to watch it. It's great. Right. Yeah. Right. So thank you for having him on. You're, <laughs> you're, you're wetting my, uh, my appetite of obsession here with this. There you go. Episode 103. Hotshot, you don't need me to tell you that there is no Mitch Unfiltered without the cooperation of our terrific partners like the Kirkland Office of Guild Mortgage, 425-250-3150. I finally played golf with Jordan Flowers on Friday and could not believe the stories of the incredibly low interest rates and all the refinancing, borrowing, and buying that's going on, the unquestionable silver lining in this pandemic, rates in the mid to high twos, on 30-year fixed loans, tons of money to be saved. Don't be lazy. The Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Evergreen Golf Call, another strong rally week on Wall Street. Tyler Hay will join us here on episode 103 and wonder aloud whether we might get the NBA back in Seattle as an indirect result of COVID-19 and the situation in Minneapolis. Check out the website, evergreengk.com, and sign up for their fine newsletter, which is free. Zeke's Pizza, all 17 locations are now open. What happens when an employee tests positive for the virus? I think you'll very much appreciate President Dan Black's answer here on 103. Pizza and growlers straight to your door. Download the Zeke's Pizza app. Zeke's Pizza delivers homegrown in the Northwest. And Daniel's Broiler, Leshai is open offering $40 bottles of Veuve Clicquot Champagne, regularly $145. South Lake Union and Bellevue also opened, expanding their outside dining options, which is awesome. It's time to catch up on those celebrations like graduations and anniversaries and birthdays. Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. This is episode 103, ladies and gentlemen. And it starts right now. Unfiltered. The conspiracy <laughs> theorists are out. That yeah. Bill Belichick is behind the whole thing. He's telling guys not to play. <laughs> and he's going to try to throw the NFL season, go oh and whatever, and then have the number one pick and pick Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback, out of Clemson. Unfiltered. This is my plan if I'm John Schneider. I want all three of those guys. Oh, yeah. I want to take one shot with Russell Wilson, the new offensive line, the wide receivers, the running backs, Clowney, Dunbar, Adams, Bobby Wagner, the new number one pick, Jordan Brooks, take one shot, one swing at the Super Bowl pinata. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 103 is now underway. Vacation is over. We're back. I hope we didn't lose a million listeners because we decided to take a week off. God forbid we take a week off. I went to Leavenworth and oh, swam yeah. with the fishies. <laughs> right, you sure did. <laughs> not that way. Not you know. Not, <laughs> not, not, not the mafia way. You're still here. <laughs> 
We took a week off in episode 103. Now we're refreshed. Yes. And we're ready to go along with my dear friend, Hotshot Scott Soden of 25 years. And you are wearing... It's Apache Junction, Arizona, where my dad lives. Apache Junction, Arizona. Where is Apache Junction, Arizona? God only knows. I don't you know. You don't know? Well, it's, uh, is it near you, Phoenix? Is well, it near Tucson? everything near Phoenix? Well, is it closer to Tucson? Phoenix. Or closer to Phoenix. Okay. Closer to Tempe, Phoenix, that area. Okay. I don't, my, Do you like Arizona? I love Arizona. I actually love it a lot. And all my, it feels like everyone I know is there. Yeah. My, my father-in-law lives there. My dad, yeah. my sister, uh, my, my wife's uncle and cousin. Like, I feel like I should be living there. I just, I don't know where I'm going to work. A little more high on your microphone and you can go to Arizona. We can do the show in Arizona. <laughs> That's true. Just a little more high. <laughs> That's true. You, now, I, I thought in, in segment one, before we get to the guests and before we do the other stuff segment where we do all the different topics and storylines, we got to get to the college football news. It's not very uplifting the college football news as it relates to this season and the pandemic. But I thought maybe I would begin episode 103 with something a little fun. Okay, good. Would you like a little fun? You can never have enough in 2020. I'm going to play you some audio, but before I do, I want to make sure that you and our audience remember the focal point of the audio. Okay. Okay. It's something very subtle that I think you will get a kick out of. If I say the name Reese McGuire, do you remember who that is? I'm we spoke about Reese McGuire for a, a good lengthy chunk of time on a previous on a previous Mitch Unfiltered episode. Wait, you do you and remember I who? Did? Yes, you and I did. Do you do you know the name? When I tell you who he is, you'll say, Oh yeah, yeah, I just didn't remember my name. Okay. Who Reese McGuire is. Reese McGuire grew up in Covington kind of Kent-ish Washington. Okay. He was a baseball player, a standout at, I believe, Kent Wood High School. Okay? He was drafted in the 2013 draft, 14th. What are you laughing at? I think 14th I know overall. Now. Yeah. now you're 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 remembering? It's coming back, yes. Okay. He was the 14th overall pick in the 2013 draft. Very good high school amateur baseball player. Wait, who, I'm sorry, who drafted him? Pittsburgh drafted him, but he's on the Toronto Blue Jays now. Okay. Not the Yankees. No, the Yankees didn't draft him. Okay. Okay. Do you, do you know who Reese McGuire is now? Why we spoke about him the last time? I think he was in a parking lot. He was in a parking lot in Dunedin, Florida in February, just before the whole pandemic hit. Yeah. And he was... He was feeling a little randy. Shall we, shall we say, enjoying himself. Yeah, he was. He was, mas- as Jerry Seinfeld would say, he was master of his own domain or That's something right. like that, right? Yep. And... A police officer found him enjoying himself in the parking lot of a shopping center at midday in Dunedin, Florida, and he was charged with a misdemeanor of whatever you want to call it. Turns out that's frowned upon by law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you read up on it now, officers didn't understand because he told him that he was just in his apartment, and, he, and they were like, well, why did you leave your apartment yeah. to come here and then do that? Right. That doesn't make any sense, and he had no answers for him. So he's a... A Pacific Northwest baseball player, Toronto Blue Jays, who did not have his greatest moment in the parking lot (laughs) in Dunedin, Florida in February. Okay. Fast forward to now August. And the Toronto Blue Jays are playing a series against the Atlanta Braves. Okay. In Atlanta. No fans. They're putting on the games. And I don't even think Toronto's playing at home. I guess Toronto's playing their game somewhere else. And... It's time for Reese McGuire to come up to the plate and bat. And the announcers on the broadcast are talking about the previous thing. They're not even paying really much attention. 
But if you listen closely, you might get a kick out of the broadcast. The broadcast of the Blue Jays and the Braves. Okay, I'm ready. Listen closely. And on a night when the Braves would love, as you said, Jeff, some length out of their starter, he's thrown 28 pitches and he has one out to get in the third. Well, they think they'd love some length, but also <laughs> this kind of performance. Son. Now, did you follow it? Yes, I did. Did you get it? Length? No. Oh. You missed it. I missed it. You missed it. I knew you were going to miss it the ah, first time. Go on, one more I'm time. going to give you another shot yeah, yeah, at yeah. it. Okay, okay. Okay, I'm listen. Focusing on length. Don't like. don't listen to the announcers. Okay, gotcha. McGuire is coming to the to the plate while the announcers are talking. Listen closely to the background. Okay. And on a night when the Braves would love, as you said, Jeff, some length out of their starter. Good Lord. <laughs> He's thrown 28 pitches, and he has one out to get in the third. Give well, I think they'd raise. love some length, but also <laughs> this kind of performance. It, Son. it hits him, right? Okay, yeah, so it, it hits him. him. Yeah. <laughs> Give that kid a, a raise. I don't know who, who runs the now, audio. Now, now, you and I both got it. Yeah. I'm still sure that somebody's driving around in their car listening to the Mitch podcast. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out what 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 am I what am I missing? One more time. Yes. Listen, Reese McGuire, yeah. misdemeanor of enjoying himself in a parking lot at a shopping center in Dunedin, Florida, comes to the plate. Listen to what the organ player is doing organ. when he comes to the plate for the first time on Thursday night. And on a night when the Braves would love, as you said, Jeff, some Listen length out of their starter. Listen to the announcer. He's thrown 28 pitches, and he has one out to get in the third. Well, I think they'd love some length, but also <laughs> this kind of performance. Son. <laughs> it finally hits him so great. Now, is he going to get in trouble for that? Or, I don't know. Or a little sensey these I days. So I love it. I think that's great. A good Michael Jackson beat it. Oh, so great. In the background. Good good for whoever runs the, runs the music know. there. That's hilarious. I just thought that that would be a good way to start episode 103 from so, Vacation. Very good. So glad I heard that. Are you allowed? To, you should be allowed to do that, right? Reese McGuire wouldn't yes. be mad. Yeah. You don't think Reese McGuire went back to the dugout and was like, go somebody go find that organ player and get him fu- get him fired, right? No. He, he, good natured ribbing. Yes, of course. It's, it's, it's busting chops. <laughs> it's, you know, that's hilarious. That's really I funny. love the fact, and by the way, just so you know, when I decided to play that for you earlier today, yeah. I, I was betting myself whether you were going to get it the first time. <laughs> and you thought I wouldn't? And I never I never really paid much attention to the announcer saying length and all that yeah. stuff. That kind of threw you off. Yeah, I thought that was just a funny coincidence, talking about his length. And all, all right, that. here's the story of episode 103, and I think the story of this coming week in all of sports. It's not a good one for all of us fans of sports. Commissioners of the Power Five conferences held... An emergency meeting, Hotshot Scott, on Sunday, the day that we're recording this, as there's growing concern among college athletic officials that the upcoming football season and other fall sports can't be played because of the coronavirus pandemic, sources told ESPN. Several sources have indicated that Big Ten presidents following a meeting on Saturday are ready to pull the plug on its fall sports season, including football, And they wanted to gauge if commissioners and university presidents, chancellors from the other Power Five conferences, the ACC, Big 12, Pac-12, SEC, will fall in line with them. That's why they had the conversation on Sunday. Presidents and chancellors of the Pac-12 universities are scheduled to meet on 
Tuesday this week, several sources have told ESPN over the last 48 hours that the postponement or cancellation of the football season seems inevitable. Many of those sources believed it ultimately will take a Power 5 conference to move things in that direction and that either the Big 10 or the Pac-12 will probably be the first league to do it. The unidentified source said, quote, nobody wants to be the first, but no one wants to be the last either. So there's rampant speculation. Uh. By the time you and I get together for episode 104 next Sunday night for a Monday release, that the college football season will be done. Yeah, How do you feel about that? The last I saw was UConn. They canceled their program because UConn's not beholden to a conference because they're an independent when it comes to football. So I right. saw that they were done. Right. And then the Mid-American, was that right? The Mid-American conference? That's right, the MAC. I saw they canceled their season. So the Ivy so. League started first. Yeah. And no one, no one really, uh, they're the Ivy League. They don't make a lot of money playing football. Right. Then the MAC or then UConn did it. And everybody said, uh, they don't make a lot of money right. playing football. They're struggling financially. So let's not consider what they're doing. And then... Uh, and then the Mac did it. Well, they're small, smaller, you know, Division One or whatever football. Let's not worry about what they're doing. And now there's the. It's just, it's just a matter of time. We're gonna have to deal with a fall without college football, and that's. It's a bummer. That's a real bummer. And it, this might sound like sour grapes in a way, but it, it, it would have felt really weird to have college football with no fans, no band, none of that stuff. Because to me, college football is all about the craziness and the crowd, the atmosphere. Yeah, the band and. So it would have felt weird having it. I'm sure I still would have watched, of course, but it just would have felt a little weird. So maybe we sit it out a year. I know it's tough. And then I don't think they're going to sit it out a year. I think they're going to move it to spring. Okay, we'll sit it out. But I don't think that that's going to do what you want it to do and allow the the pageantry to come back. It's not going to be back to normal. I don't think in March and April, I I don't know, I I hope, but I don't think in March and April – we're going to have school presidents allowing 75,000, 100,000 kids or 100,000 people in to watch college football. I don't think we'll be there yet. So I think you're going to have to still consider what you just described, a visual of college football being played over eight or ten weeks, maybe a couple of games not, not getting in there, but not a lot of fan participation, not a lot of revelry, not a lot of pageantry, yeah. not a lot of pomp and circumstance, but just college football. I mean, the hope is by by spring that there would be some answers to this, but I don't see how that's really a – I wouldn't bet on that. I know you didn't grow up with college football, even though you, I know you love it. I love college football, but right. not as much as probably you love college football. Waking up on Saturday, putting on game day, right. seeing the wazoo flag always right. in the back and – the interviews and the atmosphere and the kids are out there at 6 a.m. with the signs. I love everything about college football. It really is a bummer. Okay. What if I told you as a football, you also like the NFL, right? Sure. What if I said, okay, instead of having college football in the fall, what you do get though is you get instead of three or four months of football, you get six or eight months of football. Because the NFL stays true to itself and they start in the second weekend of September and they go through the Super Bowl in February. Right. And then college football decides, all right, we're going to spring. We're going to start in March. And they play a 10 or 12 week season and have playoffs. And now instead of football, college and pro together from September to February, you've got football, some sort of football from September all the way to May or June. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? That's the silver lining, for sure. Yeah. 
splitting it up and getting it for a longer. Saturdays are going to feel weird in the fall, though. It's going to be bizarre. When was the last time yeah. there wasn't college football in this country in, on Saturdays? N- n- never. Right. Yeah. It's going to be never. so weird. Just about never. I, I got a million people, well, a few, on Twitter reaching out to me, showing yeah. me that the, the, the helmet companies have designed the, the, the longer extended plastic shield over the my million dollar idea that you Your told invention. me somebody else already thought of. <laughs> yeah. You were right. <laughs> Turns out the people who make helmets for a living also came up with it. <laughs> I was already, I already bought a Ferrari thinking, oh. <laughs> thinking I was going to rake it in. Yeah, I know. Sad. <sighs> a tough one. But just add that to the list of all the weirdness and all the disappointments. No and college football and, yeah. on Saturdays in the fall. I think this week, you know, the plug's going to get pulled on the big conferences and that one will lead to the other. And I think it'll all almost kind of like the way it did Remember during the college basketball season and the start of all this and everybody was in their tournaments. Oh yeah, sure. And then one stopped and then the next stopped and then boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. And it was shut down. I think that's what's going to happen this week before you and I are together for episode 104. And there was some good news, though, some football good news. I want to know. Oh, yeah. Before we get to our guests, I want to (laughs) know, do I get any form of credit for my prediction? I get very few predictions right, but many episodes (laughs) ago, we were talking about Quentin Dunbar. Yes. And I want to, you're the grader. You, on behalf of the listeners of The Greater, here's what I said. The more I think about this, the more I consider the witnesses, the more I read the police report, the more time it's taking for the Broward County District Attorney's Office to decide whether they're going to pursue this, the more I hear about the witnesses and and what kind of people were at this party, what have you. The more I think, and look, this this prediction is probably completely irresponsible, but it's Mitch Unfiltered, so I'm going to be unfiltered. I, I think he's going to walk away from this. I am, by the way... I am not 100% convinced that he didn't do it. That's not what I'm saying here. Right. That he didn't do it. You're talking Because I don't know what happened. Yeah. I don't know if he was there, if he was a part of it, not. I, I don't know who to believe. I'm the, my, my projection, my prediction is more based on how this thing is going to unfold and how hard it would be, it feels like, for the district attorney's office and the prosecutor to win a case based on everything I'm hearing about what was going on. I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm not saying he did do it. I'm saying I think he's going to wa- I think he's going to walk away from this. Let's say hypothetically you put $100,000 down on that opinion right there, okay? You said I think he's going to walk away. Here's yeah. here's my 100 grand even yeah. money bet. Yeah. A week ago I say to you, okay, you're probably not loving your bet. Now See, don't bring that up. I'm <laughs> I'm going to let you take now now it's only a 50,000. You're only on the hook for 50,000. I'll let you take 50 grand back. Would you have hit would you have taken that? Or would you have said, "Nah, I'm confident." No, well, See, I'm I'm looking for a little credit for that <laughs> without discussing how I felt after I said that. Yeah. I have to say that I became a little disheveled. Yeah, it didn't look good. When, well, you know, in one on one hand it didn't and what we're talking about is when we started to find out that there was a payoff to witnesses to change their yeah. their stories about what Quentin Dunbar did or didn't do on that night in Florida. Now, right? the lawyer that we had on may or may not have been involved. Might and, have been yeah. involved. It was in his office. There's videotapes. It, <laughs> it looked bad. But at the same time, while it looked bad, it's still – and I think we talked a little bit about this or I talked about this with, a, with an attorney. It's still – portrayed even even that supposed payoff still characterized the witnesses as 
really shaky in their credibility. If they were going to take they were going to take money to change their story and they've got a checkered past to begin with, the question still remained the same, which was how much now the other guy, by the way, the Giants player, he apparently is going to going to trial and could be going to jail for a long time. Yeah. I still have my and I'll say it again, I still have my reservations of whether they're going to win this case or not, whether the district attorney's office, Broward County, Florida, is going to beat the Giants guy. Because I still wonder about the credibility of these witnesses. But well, it was a pretty good call at first, though. It was a good at call. First, yeah, at good first. Call. Notice I'm not playing my subsequent comments. <laughs> That's right. I just wanted a little bit of credit. Anyway, Quentin Dunbar is now no longer, no longer on trial or being accused of armed robbery he's off the commissioner's exemplist is it official i I figured that that would be an immediate reaction he'd be off the commissioner's exemplist he'll probably be here in the northwest with the team this week your buddy joe fan friend of the show absolutely tweeted that he's back on the roster and he said all of a sudden the seahawks dream secondary could be a reality you know adams Diggs, shaquille and dunbar now we we do need to remember one thing which i've stood yeah right i've stood very tall on and i'm not changing i may have changed my mind about other things i'm not changing my mind on this i don't think that there's any question that the nfl will still levy some sort of consequences or punishment the way of Quentin Dunbar. It, just because he was cleared in Florida because they don't have enough evidence to to convict him, that doesn't necessarily mean that the NFL, who's doing its own investigation right now as we speak, doesn't look and say, okay, this guy should not have been where he was. Yeah. He gave the NFL a black eye, and we're going to hit him. We're going to ding him for four games, six games. We went down this with the Jaron Reed story, right? right? That's exactly right. Who did and a it, lot less than this. Well, I, mean, I don't want to start. Okay, well, I don't want to start right. quantifying one versus the well, other. One was, one was a felony. Di- in term, I guess in terms of the law, yeah. yes, but there was a domestic, yeah, there was a okay. domestic issue there. I'm not going to get All involved. Right, fair enough. What, what I'm trying to say is that Jaron, there was not enough evidence to convict, and they dropped all charges just like they did here, yeah. and they gave him a six. The NFL gave him a six game suspension. Was anyway, it six? I thought it was four. I thought he was out six games right. last God, year. God, that's a lot. So, and, and the NFL just Jeez. did their own investigation and said. We don't care what King County says. Yeah. We think Jaron Reed put himself in a very bad position, gave the NFL a bad a bad name and a bad look, and we're suspending him for six games. I expect there will be some suspension. Now, the question then becomes, how many games will it be? I don't know, because I don't know what they're going to find. And when will it be? Some people, some Seahawks fans have reached out to me asking the question, okay, it took two years for Jaron Reed's deal, for Jaron Reed's suspension. He got suspended two years after the incident. If it takes two years for Quentin Dunbar's suspension, he'll be long, he won't even be a Seahawk in two years. <laughs> right. He'll play the full 16 games. And, and while I get that, I don't know. He's in the final year of his contract. He did this. It was very high profile. Jaron Reed's was not that high profile. Yeah. This was very high profile. The NFL has been investigating this as Broward County has been for many weeks and months now. I've got a hard time believing that the NFL will suspend this guy when he's on like the Miami Dolphins next year. Right. As, and let him play the full 16 games of the Seattle Seahawks in the final year of his contract. I, I I, I just, I don't know why. I have no grounds for what I'm saying. I think he will be suspended. I think he'll be suspended this year for a number of games. But 
the end result is he's going to play for the Seattle Seahawks this year. And he's going to be available to them probably for the stretch run, maybe more than the stretch run, maybe more than half the season, the playoffs and everything else. He's going to be your starting right corner like we had all dreamed at. And it also means something else, Hotshot Scott, that my pipe dream is still alive. It may not be well, but it's alive. That Jadeveon Clowney, Quinton Dunbar, and Jamal Adams all play for the Seahawks defense at the same time. That's been my pipe dream for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and well, now it's still alive. It's a three-team parlay, and you you won the first two. I won the first two. <laughs> I got right. the first two. I'm still you got a not tough game coming. I'm up, still <laughs> not certain that they're going to get Jadeveon Clowney signed. Uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm I shouldn't even say certain. I'm not. I'm not feeling great about right. them getting Jadeveon Clowney signed. They've got 15 million in cap room. But they're not going to spend all of it because they need a little wiggle room. They need 10 or more to spend on him. I think that would leave them with too little amount of money for a rainy day, as we like to call it. So they'd have to clear some more money to get in a position to sign him to a 10 or 12 million. And that means you can, here are the four. K.J. Wright, cut K.J. Wright, six and a half million. Do you really want to cut K.J. Wright? Yeah. Maybe you can renegotiate somehow his contract and bring his number down. But he's he's a $6.5 million savings if you want to cut him. Hollister is a $3.26 million savings if you want to cut him. I like him. Mike Ayapati? Mm, yeah is a $1.5 million savings if you want to cut him. David Moore, the wide receiver, is a $2.1 million savings if you want to cut him. Those are the four as I peruse the entire roster and the salary cap numbers and who you can save money on by cutting. Those seem to be the four guys if you want to make room or more room for Clowney. I don't think they would give Clowney 10 or $11 million of $15 million. I think they'd have to get yeah. more beneath the cap before they could swing that deal. What are the chances that uh, new dad Russell Wilson gives back a couple bucks? Didn't Tom Brady do that a few times? Oh, yeah. To, yeah. to get a better team and yeah. how many Super Bowls did he win? Yeah, I don't think they actually give back money. I think they convert some money to okay. to a signing bonus. There's actually a, a technique to that okay. where he would get some more money. I don't know whether they're in a position to do that, whether his contract is too new oh. or whether it's a time of year that they can do that. I'm not an expert on that stuff, but that's a thought too that maybe – Give back 10, but we're going to make it up to you in five years or whatever. We'll put 10 well, more on. Yeah, the way that works is they give it to him up front. They give it to him. Oh, okay. in the in the way of a signing bonus, they give them they give them some of it, and they and then they prorate it. I, I'm not exactly sure the okay. numbers on that, but yeah, he's one of my the pipe dream of Clowney, <laughs> Adams, and Dunbar. How does it? How does the Seahawks defense look if you've got Bobby Wagner? Oh. right, you've got Bobby Wagner, you've got Jadeveon Clowney. you've got Jaron Reed, hopefully coming yeah. back and playing better than he played last year. You've got. Griffin on one side, Dunbar on the other. Diggs. You've got Diggs and Jamal Adams of the safety. All of a sudden, oh. you might just have a good enough defense to go along with your offense to win the whole kit and caboodle. Can't wait for them to go to the Super Bowl that none of us can go to. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> we can watch it on TV. Very Seattle. I don't want to go to the parade. I said this oh, on yeah. Twitter. I'm not Who wants? Guy. Did you go to the parade when they no. won a lot? Oh, I did. It was oh, my freezing God. that day, oh, I remember. Oh, God. So cold, right? So cold. Yeah. Yeah, I was home with a four-year-old Piper then, so no, I was—I yeah. had an excuse not to go. She was too yeah. little, and nah. yeah, Please. I hope we can. I hope they allow us to go to the Super Bowl. Yeah, but then they shut down the 
the the parade. No 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 fans at the parade. <laughs> That's what you don't want. <laughs> I want there to be a little spike in the pandemic right after the Super Bowl on the Monday after the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. I want there to be a little a, just a little spike where Inslee says, "Okay, Parade goes on, but it's on TV. Everybody's got to yeah. stay at home. That's what I I, I want to go to the B- Super Bowl, though. It's going to be interesting to see a Super Bowl with no fans. That is going to be crazy. Or what they should do is like a lottery for maybe 5,000 5, people. Well, or I don't know. Three guests and then the other stuff segment. Great to visit again with Jordan Flowers, the Kirkland office of Gil Mortgage. And I have to say... I've been trying to get Jordan out on the golf course for the last several days, weeks, but every time I ask, he tells me, I go to work at 5, I come back at like 11 o'clock, I have no time because I'm so super busy doing refinances. Here he is, so the only way I get a chance to talk to him is right here on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Jordan? Yeah, hey Mitch, it's good to talk to you, buddy. Tell me what it is that you're doing from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. that you can't get on the golf course with your buddy Mitch Levy. <laughs> well, uh, as everybody's reading in the news, incredibly low interest rates right now. Rates are at all-time lows. Refinances are through the roof. Volumes are spiking to record levels. And, I mean, we've got purchases and people buying homes left and right right now. Tell me more about the numbers. I know it somewhat depends on the applicant and credit rating and everything else, but give us a broad sense of why things are so crazy, busy, and at least good in your world, and why people are racing to refinance and to buy. Yeah, I mean, with your with your purchases, you're finding rates anywhere between two and a half to three percent on thirty-year fixed mortgages, and on refinances, you're pretty much in the same realm, depending on your loan value, credit scores, equity position. So, you're looking at rates mid twos to high twos right now so everybody's saving hundreds of dollars a month for the person who's listening right now i think we've gone through this before jordan you would say to joe schmo from seattle go take a look at your mortgage numbers go take a look at what you're paying each month go take a look at your your interest rates and if it is blank or higher give me or somebody like me a call because you could be saving money fill in those blanks i would say Take a look at your numbers. If you're anywhere over three and a quarter, three, three, seven, five or higher on a 30-year fixed, you should give us a call. There are opportunities with the amount of equity people have achieved in their homes recently um, over the last five to 10 years that even cash out refinances to pay off student loan debts or car loans or credit cards consolidating everything into interest rates in the high twos. You're, you're paying off all your debt, so you're saving your money there, plus you're saving on what your principal and interest would have been anyways. Okay, so they call you at what number, and how long does that conversation need to be before they get off the phone and they have something to consider of whether they want to go through this process? So the office line, my direct line is 425-250-3145. And my cell phone is 425-890-2957. It's a call that's no more than about five to seven minutes to get an overall understanding of um, where you're at currently in your mortgage, what the rates are, what your rate currently is, and what uh, your monthly payment is. And we run a couple numbers and you're on your way. It's five to seven minutes to get the basic information going and decide if it's worth your time to move forward. There he is, Jordan Flowers, the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Unfiltered. On his fourth, trying to make a move. And here he goes. He's just kicking it into gear. He'll be able to hold on to the goal. 
the winners and new champions of Dancing with the Stars, Apollo and What a great privilege it is to welcome in our next guest to Mitch Unfiltered. He's the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympics athlete in history. He's an eight-time speed skating medalist, perhaps more important these days, a major voice in mental health awareness amongst our great athletes. Here's the pride and joy of Federal Way Washington, Apollo Ono on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Hey, Apollo. Hey, Mitch. Great to be on with you again. It's great to hear your voice. Uh, how's life? How's life treating our guy? Catch us up. Life has been, man. It's been, it's been like I think everyone else. It's been interesting. It's been hard. It's been, you know, kind of massive changes that I don't think anyone was really expecting. Um, you know, beginning in January 2020, had some great aspirations and some big goals that we set, and then all of a sudden, you know, by the end of February, March, all of that was was changed and blocked and stopped and canceled, and we've had to kind of reinvent and and pivot in a way that I think many of us are all so familiar with. So I'm I'm positive, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm naturally optimistic and I'm hungry for the next challenge, but this has been. It's been hard for for many people and me included but i think the one thing that keeps me going is you know this belief that the human condition can continue to strive and be strong and learn from whatever experiences that we're currently going even when it's difficult to see light at the end of the tunnel so i've refocused and i would say recalibrated my 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 energy and time to be spent on things that i really care about and you know, some of these things revolve around the realm of kind of what this documentary, The Weight of Gold, is about and, and really just helping people kind of unlock that inner potential that's within them yeah. and help them see and recognize the strength that they have that sometimes we never get to see, touch, or feel until we're up against or we feel like we're at the absolute rock bottom. And it's my intention to, to help people unlock that. So that's what I've been focusing on the most as I, of uh, the beginning of this year. And I, and I, I want to talk to you and your dog about uh, these types of challenges. <laughs> Before we get there, though, I want to know where the medals are and where the Dancing with the Stars trophy is. And you're not allowed to tell me a sock drawer. Do not tell me a sock drawer because I will not believe that they're in a sock drawer. Well, they used to be in a sock drawer for, for many, many years, but now... I finally took them out, and it was because of COVID-19. I decided to take them out, look at them, and I got to tell you, this is going to sound really weird, but I never really looked at my medals and never actually examined them and looked at them, and, and you know, and, and it's interesting. Um, you know, for me, it was more the experience and the time and the energy that I spent versus the actual hardware, but for once in my life, I, I took them out. They're actually on a desk behind where I sit every single day, and uh, it feels good. So that's where they are. They're on display. And as I shoot my podcast and this whole experiment that we're working on, you know, people can see them kind of on the daily. And there's a story for each one of those medals. Nice. By the way, how would you compare the reaction you got from your Olympic medals to the reaction you received from Dancing with the Stars? That was a big show. <laughs> that, I mean, that was a big show. And that's, on some level, you probably were saying to yourself, hold on a second, I'm getting a lot of acclaim for a show that I did for whatever, 8, 10, 12 weeks, as opposed to something I did for my whole life getting ready to win those medals. That was a trip. 
I, I got to tell you, after I went on that show the first time, Dancing with the Stars, and, and we won, yeah. and I, I always remember this. This is when the light switch went on. It was when I was walking through an airport. I was in Florida for a speaking engagement, and I was going through security, and one of the guys recognized me from the show, started calling over the other agents to say hi. And then everybody behind me in line kind of peeking their head around, like, what's going on? What's the holdup? And then it was just pure mayhem. And then nobody, nobody who came up to me said, loved you in the Olympics. It was amazing. It was all, you were amazing. You're that dancing guy. We loved you. You were amazing. Frank, get over here. Take a picture. It was, it was hilarious. Yeah, it was hilarious. <laughs> so, so my life was forever changed, and uh, I was no longer an Olympic athlete. I am now a Dancing with the Stars champion. <laughs> I'm the dancing guy. I don't know how to take that. Well, I'm you, still dealing with the repercussions. You touched <laughs> about the weight of gold. I watched it last week, the HBO documentary. We also had the producer-director, Brett Rapkin, on our show. And, you know, as I watched it, I sat there amazed, Apollo, that this is something that makes so much sense that we should have seen coming years and years and years ago, and yet it hasn't really been addressed all these years. Is there any indication or is it too soon after the documentary that there's help on the way? I believe that there's definitely going to make, there's going to be some changes and a shift in the way that I think that we not only think about pre-Olympic and post-Olympic athletes' lives, but also providing resources and changes that are going to be necessary to help people transition through something that is such a huge part of their kind of childhood, right? When you yeah. think about an Olympic athlete, right. and I think the lack of resources that were not there prior to this documentary coming out was challenging because I, I think at, at its essence, the Olympic realm was never designed to do anything like that. They were just designed to create the absolute ultimate of athletes. And I think back then, and this is 15, 20 years ago, people didn't know. They didn't know that that being vulnerable can actually help you along your journey, that can create strength. People didn't recognize that underneath that layer of false armor that we all wear as we walk out of our house, that inside that lies a lot of micro fractures and a ton of micro trauma that we have hid for many, many years. And it's only when you are alone are you actually having these real conversations and these self-doubts and these insecurities. Mm-hmm. And it was also a little bit taboo to ask for help. I'm, I, and I speak from personal experience. You are in a poker game with the world, and you are designed as an athlete to never show weakness, to never show that you have self-doubt and insecurity, and instead that you are strong and you are resilient and you have grit. And the reality is you can have all of those things and still be human. And these emotional responses and these thoughts that come up in your head are because you are human. They are natural. And how you respond to them and who is around you to help you listen to you to get help, those are things that I think are, in my opinion, the most important for not only the athletes to recognize but people as well. And then to also have an actual resource pool to allow these Olympic athletes to reach out to and say, hey, look, I'm not okay. My performances do not reflect what is happening inside between my ears. And it's hard for other people to see that because I can't see in your brain. I don't know how you're thinking. It looks like you are just crushing it and you're a champion, you're resilient. But sometimes those are the stories that have the biggest fractures. They just wear this 
armor on the outside. So watching the film, I think, look, not only the U.S. OPC, um, but it's actually my hope that the IOC, the International uh, uh, Olympic Committee, the one that really governs all sport all over the planet that has the greatest amount of power, they have to make some changes. And those changes are starting to treat these athletes as long-term assets and long-term human beings, not just for their time spent in the Olympic arena. And the reason why I believe that, Mitch, is the following. Olympic athletes have accelerated certain parts of their life to a degree that allows them to have incredible life lessons that are powerful. And that's why we we love watching the Olympics because of the perseverance, the grit, and the and the dedication and the sacrifice, the hard work, and the point zero zero one percent of athletes who can make it onto the podium. We love that about what these games stand for. And I believe the IOC needs to recognize that these people, when assimilated back into society, in the civilian workforce with everyone else, right. just like those who've served in the military, are and have incredible attributes that have to be transferred into daily life. But if they and themselves are not in a healthy state to do that, we are losing an incredible opportunity to help our society grow and thrive in a way that we otherwise would have. I understand and and hear you and want to talk more about that. Uh, Apollo Ono is our guest. I, I don't know, you know, watching that, I don't know that I could ever support a child, my child's decision to try to go the Olympic route. I'd like to think that I would and could, but the price the cost of sacrificing a normal youth, especially socially, at 12, 13, 14. Is it worth it? I mean, in this day and age, Apollo, can a kid have both? Can he or she have playdates and sleepovers and prom in high school and still do the necessary training to be a world-class Olympic athlete? Can you do both? That's a great question. So my personal answer is yes and no, (laughs) because... My childhood was not normal, and it was not balanced, and it was – I made my first team when I was 14 years old. So I was technically the captain of this team traveling around with everyone when I couldn't technically go out to after the banquet and hang out with these guys for another seven years until I was like at a legal drinking age. It was – I mean, think about that. And I'm around people who have been skating for longer than I've been on this earth. So the childhood of these hyper-intense sports – look, this is my thought process. The childhood is something that should be used as a playground for kids. And the specialization and the concentration of that specialization, which we see, look, we see all sports now, you know, doing training at a younger age, cutting out all other forms of sports and only doing one. It's my belief that, uh, that, that these kids should be playing and having fun. And the reason why I think sports is still so absolutely critical in our society is because of the way that it teaches you how to win, teaches you how to lose, it teaches you about discipline and hard work and all those fundamentals that we know are incredibly important. I think now what we're talking about is the point zero zero one percent that is a level of commitment that is it's not like the rest of the right. it's not like the rest of the sporting world. Right. I mean it's really truly an obsession. And I believe that there is going to be a give and take. There is going to be sacrifice. You can't have it all. I was willing to make that sacrifice and I'm still happy to have made that sacrifice. And those, you know, the other side and the consequences associated with having such an imbalanced life for so long, I've spent the last 10 years of my life, Mitch, doing deep 
deep work, and it's ongoing. I will continue to do this to find out who am I in this world, what do I want in this world, and what does the world want from me? And that's a constant question that I will always be asking myself. I only wish that I was asked it much earlier in my career, maybe even before my first Olympics or even my second Olympics. So my real answer is I believe it's possible. I think it depends on the intensity and the drive of that particular individual. And I got to tell you, if your son or your daughter is so into a sport, and you all will know this, you can't pull them away from it. Because if you do, that is like taking away something that they've always wanted to pursue. It's their love and passion and craft. And to me, the result is important, but it's not the gold standard, right? This is something that we use as a metric from society that has been externally signaled to tell us over and over again, you are only good if you win gold, silver, bronze, and really typically if you win gold. And that's just not the case. The real win is in the process over the prize. How did you persevere? How did you get up when you fell down? How did you come back from failure? How did you reinvent yourself? How did you pivot? Those are the things I think that we as Americans especially truly love to see. And we love to see people who come back from utter failure. And that's why we love the Olympic Games is because they do these impossible tasks. But they're not superhuman people. They are Clark Kent walking around on a daily basis. They just happen to isolate one specific task in their life and they wipe away all the other noise. So it proves if you really want something – you can get it, but you're gonna have it. There is sacrifices involved. Make no mistake. Well, well, let me ask about that sacrifice. You seem so well adjusted, but only you know deep down the truth. Were there social tools missing from you and from all of your peers that they would have acquired at 12, 13, 14, 15 that they missed, and then they become a normal person in society at 25 or 27 when the spotlight goes off and they need those social tools to mix with being just a regular person. Is that, is that a problem? I can't speak for my teammates, right? Um, I can speak from my own personal experience. And that experience is that there was absolutely some gaps missing in certain areas of my life that had never been there because I had lived in the Olympic bubble uh, to a T. And if there was anyone who lived it the way that I, you know, in this particular way that you're describing, it was me. I, I was the longest running resident at the Olympic Training Center living in the dorms. I lived in those dorms 24-7 for 11 years straight before we relocated to Salt Lake City to train for my final Olympics. So I lived, breathed, and, and ate athletics and training, whether it was watching and learning from the wrestlers, seeing the weightlifting team there, learning from all these different sports and people. But when I decided to retire in 2010, I was driven, and sometimes I still am, by a deep sense of fear of failure and a deep sense of fear of I will never find something that I love as much as the Olympic path. And I've come to terms with that. And in reality, I may never feel that same level of excitement and enthusiasm that I did when I walk into the opening ceremonies or I'm standing on the podium. And that's okay. But I didn't know and I didn't recognize at the time that the skills that I had developed throughout my career as an athlete, the mental and mindset skills are the absolutely most important ones. And so today, that's what I lean on. And those things, you know, I call it the five golden principles, gratitude, giving, grit, gearing up my personal expectations, and then getting into action. Those five things serve me in a way that I can help serve the rest of the people around me. And so I still 
on an ongoing basis, I still struggle with a lot of the same insecurities and self-doubts that I had when I was younger, but I've come to terms with them. And instead of reacting all the time, I'm learning to respond. You know, you can only imagine, right? I mean, I, mean, I was a young kid on top of the world. Uh, I had the great opportunity of making money um, at an early age. But then when you snap your fingers, all of a sudden you so, look around you yeah. and the people who are around you are a little bit, you don't know who they are. They haven't seen your journey. And they're there for one reason, usually one reason only, and that reason is the almighty dollar sign. Let's talk more about that single-minded focus, Apollo. A part of the film deals with the financial problems that faced even most gold medal winners after it's all over. Do any of these athletes and their families consider and talk about life after the Olympics? What do you remember as a federal way, 17, 18, 19-year-old guy, did you ever think about what you were going to do business-wise with your life at 30 years old? I didn't have a clue. I was asked at the age of 17 what I wanted to do when I retired from sport. And I just kind of chuckled and laughed. And I was like, what do you mean when I retire? My only sole purpose on this planet is to do what I'm doing right now. Now, that's a very empowering feeling. And it's like jumping out of a you know, airplane with no parachute trying to land on a target. If you, if you land on the target, then you, you know, you're alive. If you don't, then you, know, you die. That was like my mentality. It was this do or die mentality. And I was willing to risk it all for a 40-second race that happens once every four years. I mean, it's, it's absurd and insane in the same realm. And I also loved it. That's what I signed up for. That's what I embodied. And that's what I trusted. And that's why I spent so much time in the process versus the prize because I knew that I couldn't control the outcome entirely. So, you know, when you talk about these financial issues that exist, look, the Olympic commitment is not easy. And, you know, unless you're in a larger sport like a track and field or a swimming or a sport that generally, you know, yields a significant amount of income, it's going to be a struggle. And if you're talking about the Winter Olympics, you know, skiing is one of those sports, but still it's, it's not cheap to go down this road. And if people had the idea of I'm doing this because I want to get a big contract or a big salary, <clears throat> number one, there is no salary in the Olympics. Number two, it's not subsidized by the government. Number three, the prize money that you probably earn, and, I'll, and I'm being transparent here, when I won world championships, the check that I received was $12,000 for winning world championships. And if you think about that, I mean, I can easily spend $10,000 a year on equipment alone just for speed skating. Mm -hmm. So the, it was never done for money. And, it, that's, and by the way, that thought process was never even in my mind when I was training because it, it had nothing to do with it. I was going to do this regardless because this is what my pure heart said I should be doing. But absolutely, there, there are some programs that exist to help athletes manage finances. But it's not easy, right? I mean, that transition is something that I'm very passionate about and helping people pivot and reinvent themselves and recognize that they actually have a lot of answers. They may just need to have some better people around them yeah. um, so they can really trust and grow in a way that I think is really truly within their potential. But it's not easy, and those financial challenges that families face are very real. And I know that my father, and, and God bless my dad for being so committed to helping me achieve my dream. It wouldn't have been possible without a dad who, who gave me so much love and support. But my dad didn't make a lot of money. You know, my dad has been working hard in Seattle and downtown Belltown his whole life. My dad worked seven days a week. Mm -hmm. 
that's that my dad that is his life is connecting with the community and he takes great, great pride in that but we didn't come from a wealthy background but that didn't stop us and that didn't stop me and that doesn't stop anyone from going out and pursuing their dreams apollo let's go back to those insane 40 seconds that you referred to a few minutes ago the the obvious yeah. difference between olympic athletes and all others is what you mentioned the one shot in four years i mean lebron james Tiger Woods, Russell Wilson, Mike Trout, they can all have bad nights. They can all have bad weeks. They can have bad years and still far exceed expectations. For you guys, it's cruel. You get 60 seconds or a couple of minutes, and that's it. How do you deal with that part of this? (laughs) You're absolutely correct. When you talk about thriving in that short time frame, it forces a level of concentration and focus and preparation that borders insanity. And I think it's necessary. I look, I love professional sports and I have so much respect for athletes who have made these tremendous amount of, of capital, um, you know, accomplishments in their life and they give back to their communities and, and, and they integrate in ways that it's just, it's just, it's so inspiring to see, but that time frame, you're absolutely right. When you go and compete in those games, it is it, it, you have one shot, it's and amazing. it's very easy to have a bad day, to be sick, but that's why the mind is so powerful. And it's so interesting to me to know how strong mentally these athletes are, but then on the flip side, how easily distracted or that they can crumble in the same realm. Right. I mean, the, the amount of pressure and time and energy that goes into that that time before the race. Now you're stepping to the start line. You've committed 12 years of your life for this particular moment. Right. And now you have one shot at trying to be your absolute best. And there's thousands of variables that may change that day. Your mind is one of them. And so you're forced into this flow state. And it's almost like, you know, Neo from the Matrix dodging those bullets. Everything slows down. And I hope that these athletes can recognize, hey, what you did there, you can do again and again and again in other parts of your life. It just takes getting uncomfortable again, being around an environment where you're not used to doing. There's no more power cleans. There's no more squats. There's no more leg press. There's no more jumps. Now you're exercising something solely based on your brain, how you communicate with people, and how you transfer that energy and et cetera. And it's a foreign environment because – we could, I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't have to smile. Yeah. I had a helmet on. I had my racing suit. That, that was who I was. Mm-hmm. And then now, they call it the great divorce happens. Your first true love gave you everything, nurtured you, brought you up when you, were, you thought you were weak, and it showed you you were strong. It gave you all these incredible lessons. And then as you snap your fingers and you retire the next morning, there's no more coach. There's no more training program. The guardrails go completely flat. And you're looking out in this open landscape with no clear direction or understanding. Some parents have done a great job of telling their son or daughter, hey, you got to prepare for when this thing will potentially stop. And, and it's going to happen. It's inevitable. right? That's the one thing that we know is constant. But I heard that, Mitch, and I didn't care because I didn't believe it. Right. I didn't want to know. I wanted to prepare as if this was it. This was the last run. This was the last hurrah. And maybe there's a lot of power in that. And I think psychologically, potentially, that's what I use as a lever. They always say the lion is the most dangerous when it's backed up against the wall, when it knows it's near the end, when it has nothing to lose. And there's something very empowering about that. 
I just don't believe it's the only option. I think there's many other ways that we can still thrive in these environments. Two last ones for you, Apollo. You mentioned a couple times, and you did a, did so on the on the film, that you were driven by the fear of failure as opposed to all the other athletes that I think were featured. They wanted to be the greatest. They wanted to be the greatest. They wanted to be the best. Where does that come from? I, that resonates with me because I was you know, on the radio show for 25 years, much smaller example than yours, tiny in comparison, but I was always afraid of failing, and that, that's what drove me. Was that just in your nature? Is that in your family? Where does that come from? And is, is, that, is that unhealthy? Was it a healthier idea to be driven by wanting to be the best, or was it a healthier idea, or maybe neither one is so healthy, to be driven by the, the fear of failure? Driven by fear of failure was absolutely a large part of a lever that I used to propel the pain that I had towards something that was positive. I also wanted to be the best, and I also wanted to be the greatest. That is, that is also an absolute truth that I had. But many times, those insecurities of what if I fall short? What if someone else is more technically gifted? What if they're stronger? What if they're more efficient than I am? What if I don't have it anymore? What if I lost my mojo? Am I too long in this sport? Have people figured me out? These are natural conversations I would have all the time. Yeah. And it's this internal struggle, this struggle and battle that we have with ourselves. I was able to overcome them. I was able to put them aside and use it as a tool to know that, hey, I, do, I really hate to lose. I love winning, but I hate losing. And that psychological pain that would occur when it didn't go my way, and not just because I lost, because maybe I made a mistake or something else, was sometimes paralyzing. And through a lot of both deep psychological work with our sports psychologists, with personal work, understanding that I can thrive using any lever, whether it was pure alpha and I want to be the alpha dog in the room and I want to be the captain and I want to just crush the competition, or I was maybe sometimes driven by this fear of failure. And I think that once we're able to recognize those things, they become power versus being hindrances or paralyzing us. And so I think at an early age, you know, my main goal was to just make sure my dad was happy with my performance, right? That's we, we seek the love from our parents so, so deeply that resonates with everyone. And I think as I grew as an athlete, it became much more personal. And then as it became more personal and mm-hmm. I started to win and to lose, I tasted both sides of the equation. And that's where that idea set came from that I was really driven by making sure I, – I, I, my whole thing was I was – always in fear that it wasn't enough, that I wasn't enough, and that what I was doing and what I was preparing for wasn't enough. Last question in the ground rules are you're not allowed to say nothing. You can snap your fingers and change one or two things in either the preparation, the aftermath, the time at the Olympic Games, the competition. What would Apollo Ono do differently now with the... uh, the ability to look back. Wow, 2020. Um, okay, so <clears throat> I would say that I wouldn't change anything about my career. I would look back on the transition. I would, I would have loved to have had someone that I could, I could have as a mentor and as a shadow who wasn't my father, someone in business that I could just literally work for for a year, unpaid, someone who I deeply respected and who I thought really understood the way that they could operate. 
that would have been so incredibly beneficial to me that I wouldn't have to go out there, use my own capital time and resources and energy and fail to learn those very hard lessons. I think that would have accelerated my life. But you know what, Mitch? I, I hate to say it, and I, you, don't, you don't want me to say it, but life happens, and we're all dealt a different deck of cards, and how we play those cards make up the chapters of our life. And the way that I have played my deck of cards, I have won, and I have lost, and I have learned from all of those experiences. And so in reality, I think that these are all wins. I think that my, my mission in life, it's taken me a long time to recognize that I'm driven by how I, how I can impact other people in the United States and across the globe about how to unlock that high performance gold medal mindset that is within them. Mm. And sometimes we self-sabotage, sometimes we're complicit in our own actions, but I want to help recognize that they hold the key to unlocking a life that can be filled with, it's beautiful. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be smooth but we know that we can handle life and we can live it and it starts happening for us instead of to us. A great champion, both on the ice and off the ice, the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympics athlete in history. And he's an eight-time speed skating medalist. He's Apollo Ono. Apollo, it's great to visit with you again. Thanks for all the words. I really would uh, hope that everybody would check out The Weight of Gold. It's an important hour. It's all it is. It's an hour, but it's an important hour, and you might be able to take something from it that you can apply to your life and your world. Thanks, Apollo. Thanks for the visit again. Thanks, Mitch. Great to hear your voice, brother. Thank you. Super cool to visit again with Apollo Ono. Just another record-setting Pacific Northwest athlete, not to mention Dancing with the Stars champion. I always say it, and I mean it. There's no Mitch Unfiltered without great partners like Premier Wealth Manager Evergreen Golf Call. Here he is, CEO Tyler Hay. How's everyone doing over there, Tyler? What's the latest with EG? Everything's going great, Mitch. We're just dealing with the same same things that everybody's dealing with, the post-COVID world and actually the kind of the talk around uh, Evergreen is, is what's going on with schooling and stuff like that. Uh, we found out that our kids are going to be doing remote learning for the foreseeable future. So my wife's not very happy. So that generally <laughs> is not, not a good sign. Tell me about the, um, the strategies and the financial situation ramifications long-term as it relates to the COVID virus and what the economy has been doing. Sure. Maybe I'll give you kind of two high-level points that I think will affect people, and not necessarily their portfolios directly, but there certainly are ways to extrapolate what it might mean for that. But I do think that one giant trend that's here to stay as a result of this is sort of the re-suburbanization, if you will, of the world. I think that you're going to see lots of people deciding for a variety of reasons that they no longer want to live in an urban environment. And I think that has real implications for home values and commuting and telecommuting and all those things. So I think that's a pretty interesting trend that I don't think is going away. And then I also think that you're going to see kind of a deglobalization of the world. I mean, one of the interesting points, I don't know how many listeners know, but of the essential ingredients for producing pharmaceuticals, something like 80% of it is produced in countries abroad, the United States. And I'm talking about medicines that we are then using here. So I think that you're going to see that shift start to occur and and come back uh, within our borders. So from an investment standpoint, those are some things. And I think also it's interesting to think about in the sports world, maybe transition the conversation or pivot it to kind of be on brand with something that, you know, your listeners are might be interested in. 
you know, I think that one of the maybe silver linings for Seattle sports fans is that COVID-19 fallout could make it more likely for the Sonics to come back to Seattle. I know Glenn Taylor, the owner of the Timberwolves, has promised that he isn't going to sell to someone that's going to move the team. But we've heard that message here in Seattle, and, and we saw how that worked out. So given the state of Minnesota and, and basically local governments everywhere, applying tax revenue to build a stadium seems probably pretty unlikely. And then I think that the other thing that is, is worthwhile and had some sports ramifications and had some investing ramifications is just the emergence of online gambling. We're seeing it on a state-by-state level. It's being legalized. But in this world, tax revenue is, is a scarcity. Um, and so I think that you're going to see states kind of accelerate their adoption of sports gambling. And, and I think that that'd probably be a pretty exciting thing for our local listeners here. Wouldn't that be an incredible silver lining if because of COVID-19 or indirectly we end up with an NBA team back here in Seattle. Begin your introduction to Evergreen Golf Call with their website and their free newsletter, evergreengk.com. Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Players of the Pac-12 have released a list of demands that the conference will have to meet in order for them to play in this upcoming season. The list includes allowing players the option to not play during the pandemic without losing athletics eligibility or a spot on the team's roster. They want Commissioner Larry Scott, administrators and coaches to voluntarily and drastically reduce excessive pay. The conference needs to form an annual Pac-12 Black College Athletes Summit. Players want medical insurance selected by them for sport-related medical conditions including COVID-19 illness. Top tracer, powered by Top Golf. That looks like a wow. It's brilliant, Nick. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Little tap in, Nick. 64, final round. And a California kid is the new star in the game of golf. Well, we reached out to our next guest to chat about the proposed football player boycott in the Pac-12, only to find out that San Diego Union-Tribune writer Mark Ziegler would be spending his week at Harding Park in the PGA Championship. So we're going to double dip and we're going to pay Mark double what we intended in the first place. Hey, Mark. How you doing? <laughs> We're doing all right. How you doing in uh, in Northern California? Trying to stay warm. Uh, this is, you know, for the rest of the country, it's probably hard for them to believe this, but I mean, it is cold here. It is, it is, uh, you know, temperatures in the fifties, foggy, no sun, windy, damp, something out of the fall or late winter. Colin Morikawa wasn't a household name to most on Thursday, despite being one of. The great young players, Mark, but he is now pocketing a major championship just a few miles from where he starred at Cal Berkeley. I would think this is a popular win despite no fans being there. Yeah, it's too bad there weren't fans, especially to see a shot at 16. But I, I tell you what, I think we've kind of peeked into the future of golf here. This isn't some guy who just got hot in a majors week and there were no fans. So he sort of had that Sunday gallery pressure and he took advantage of it. If you talk to people, I talked to some of the other golfers, that they've been expecting this. Paul Casey, who finished second, told us, he just goes, look, when he came on the tour last summer, I've been around, I've seen the young players come and go. 
we all sort of looked at each other and said, this is the guy. Uh, he's that good. You briefly mentioned 16. For the people in our audience who don't know what you're referring to, I love those short par fours in major championship golf, and that's what it was. He took driver out of the bag and tell everybody what he did, Mark. Well, you know, he's played here a bunch of times because, as you said, he went to Cal. He's probably played here 15 times. Uh, he played all the practice rounds. He knows every hole by by heart, and he told everybody. He said, "Look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pull driver out on 16. It's a short, drivable par four. They move the tees up for that one hole. Everything else is lengthened. Uh, it's a 16, so it's right in the stretch coming in home." And he said he wasn't gonna do it. Well, he got there today. Paul Casey had just tied him at 11 under, and he looked at the yardage and said, "Man, it's perfect for my driver. He hits a little bit of a baby cut, so he wrap it around the tree." get it between the traps, hope to get a little bit of a roll, and that's exactly what happened. It was, the yardage was 294. He hit it 291, had an uphill 7-foot, 8-foot putt for Eagle, made it, and that pretty much won in the tournament. Seems like a, a multiple Grand Slam winner when it's all said and done in, in Morikawa. Heading into the final round, Mark, this set up to be a really wild Sunday all the eyes were focused on Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka to a lesser extent, Bryson DeChambeau, who was within range. And yet it's this this wet behind the years rookie who stands tall at 64. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think people who really follow the tour and were really sort of in and, and, and understand, you know, this young group coming up knew he was he was going to pop one. He didn't know what was going to happen here, but he was going to have a real good round and he was going to win a major or win a few terms. He'd already won twice before in the tour. The stat that really impresses me about him is he made the cut in his first 22 straight starts on the tour and finally missed a cut. The only person who's done better is Tiger Woods, who won 25 straight or, or made the cut 25 straight times. That tells you something about how consistent he is, how mature he is, uh, how cerebral he is, how how smart his course management is, and how well-rounded his game is. From day one, everybody said about him that he's one of the great iron players in the world, having not even been out of school yet. So when he putts and he does the little things to go along with that great iron play, he's going to win an awful lot. Before we get off of the PGA Championship, Mark, after Brooks Kepka's jab at Dustin Johnson's one major, on Saturday night, which was the talk of the golf world and didn't set w- sit well, by the way, with others like Rory McIlroy. Anyone see a four over 74 final round coming from the guy who had won the last two PGA championships? You know, not at all, although he has struggled a little bit this year. And I think he wasn't, you know, I, I don't want to say his confidence is wavering because certainly it wasn't after comments like that. Uh, but his game was wavering a little bit. And, and you could see with some loose shots here and there. And some drives that, you know, in the past would have been striking the fairway and were, and were bouncing into the rough. And it was probably coming and it was probably due him. Uh, and he probably shouldn't have said that. But, you know, when you when you pull back and look at the big picture, he's a pretty impressive guy in what he's done in majors. Whether you like him or not, uh, his record kind of speaks for itself. Do you think he was trying to take a shot at Dustin? Do you think it was gamesmanship? Do you think he was trying to put the heat on Johnson, knowing that he was the guy to catch going into the final round? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's just part of his, who he is. And, and, and I think he, you know, a lot of these guys kind of say stuff and maybe they intended to have a, you know, a reaction or, 
or, or uh, get some coverage. Sometimes you guys just say it, you know, some guys speak, sometimes think with their mouths and, and maybe that's there's a little bit of that going on with him. Let's segue, Mark, Mark Ziegler, our guest, San Diego Union Tribune. Let's segue to what figures to be a moot point now with everyone expecting college football to shut down this week. But interesting, nonetheless, you had a fairly spirited reaction to the Pac-12 group of football players threatening boycott if they didn't receive a lot of accommodations. They even threw the revenue-sharing demand in there. Walk our audience through how you feel about this, Mark. Well, I just think it's come time for athletic directors and other people in, in college athletics to stand up behind their product. I mean, I, I, I'm around it. I cover San Diego State's basketball team. I'm around college athletes. I see how they're treated I see what they get. And I just don't think people sort of look at the big picture of, well, yes, there's a scholarship, but there's so much more that they get, whether it's medical care, whether it's priority registration, whether it's full-time tutoring, the meals they get, charter flights, five-star hotels. I think it, I don't want to say compensated because they don't have a technically have a job. This isn't a job. College sports is different. But I think they're, they're, the, the benefits they receive, the amenities they receive, are incredible, and I think that that uh, it's a great deal. And, and and college sports aren't for everybody. That's kind of my what's the theme of my column. That it's you know it's sort of like if you don't like it, if you don't like what they're offering, you don't have to go. No one's holding a gun in your head. Go play your pro ball somewhere else. Uh, you don't have to go to college uh, if you don't like it. And and uh, I think it's time for somebody you know somebody stood up and sort of said that. My college bound son had intended to enroll at USC for the longest time. That was going to cost us what three hundred and fifty grand. Over four years, Mark. Well, look at the debt you would have had, uh, or he would have had coming out of college, and that's the other thing that people kind of forget. You get a college education, and you have no debt. And I mean, I think there's over a trillion dollars in college debt right now floating around the United States. And so you're not going to get a lot of sympathy from your average college student, and you're not going to get a lot of sympathy, to be honest, from other athletes on campus because they see how the football and basketball players are treated. And while everybody's supposed to be treated equally within an athletic department. The reality is they're not. And, and so, you know, these, these softball players and tennis players look at them as, as a little bit spoiled. Now I understand their argument. They make a lot of money or the football teams generate a lot of revenue for those universities. But the other point, and that I try to make in, in, in my column is that, look, this is a nonprofit organization that you're talking about. Uh, they have tax exempt status but they're also under certain regulations. And, and one of them is Title IX as a federal law. Mm-hmm. And that gender equity forces athletic departments to have broad-based programs and teams that offer opportunities to women as much as they do to men. And so they have to have women's sports if they're going to have football with their 85 scholarships. Uh, and you can't just say, well, cut all those women's sports and give all the money to the football players. You'd be violation of Title IX. Now, you know you're going to get called a get-off-my-lawn, old fuddy-duddy by all the talking <laughs> heads who thinks the college, all these talking heads who think the college athletes are being exploited. You get that, right? You understand. Oh, I've heard it. I've heard it all. And I understand <laughs> the point. I mean, I get it. But, I, look, I, I, I was more trying to point out the complexity of the college economy, the college sports economy. It's not as simple as, hey, these guys need to get paid more because they're generating more income. There is a Title IX issue here. And I think the issue is less with athletic directors and conferences as it is with Title IX. And I, and I said that in the column. I think they're barking up the wrong tree. And I, and I think this is the way this is going to go. I think we're going to have a big showdown 
between women's sports mm-hmm. and college football players and men's basketball players who generate the income and the women's teams that, you know, quite frankly, ended up spending it because right. they have those opportunities right. uh, granted them by Title IX. Mark, were you okay with the NCAA acquiescing to allow athletes to monetize their name, image, and likeness? Are you all right with that? And how does that play into all of this, or doesn't it? It does a little bit as well, because I think it was a concession the NCAA made to them, just as they they made a concession with cost of attendance, which is a $5,000, in many cases, $5,000 stipend in cash they're getting. Uh, There are things like uh, 24-7, round-the-clock food availability, another concession. And I think some of those things are good. My problem with name, image, and likeness is that, number one, it upset this very, very fragile, delicate, collegiate ecosystem that these sports exist in. And what will happen eventually is, you know, a firm like Adidas will say, well, why do I need to support and give all this money, $160 million to Louisville to support all their sports when I can just pay the star quarterback twenty-five dollars or $50,000 and kind of get the same return? And then that's money out of the college coffers that support all these programs, just as if a booster who, who owns a car dealership says, hey, you can come, uh, I'll give you a deal here. You do an endorsement deal. I'll give you $25,000 for it. Well, that's $25,000 less he's going to give the athletic department. So I always try to point out that, you know, that this is not a zero-sum game. That there's, going to be some, there's going to be some issues on the back end. Uh, and my last point on, on name, image, and likeness is I think the name on the front of the jersey in college sports, not in pro sports, but in college sports, is more important than the name of the back. I think these brands have been established for 100 years in many cases, fueled by alums who went to that university, got their degrees. It's the university and not the player. Hmm. All right, I'm going to end with a golf question. Stick your neck out, Mark. We watched Tiger Woods really struggle on the greens at Harding Park. You were there up close and personal. They're going to play, what, six more majors in the next 11 or 12 months? Tiger might go back to his old putter, might not. Will Tiger Woods contend? Will he be in position to win any of these next six? Or has time passed him by? You know, it's interesting. I wrote about that yesterday. I I think he'll be in contention. I think he's still good enough to be in contention. But he made a really good point. There's two points here, and he, he sort of made both of them. One, he's closing in on his 45th birthday. And there's only a handful of guys who have ever won majors that old. And, you know, I, I, if you look at Julius Boros, who's the oldest who's ever won a major, I believe it's 48, he's only got, I think, 15 more shots at this. And he's got to win four of them to pass Jack and win 19 majors and, and have the all-time record. And the second thing, and he pointed out, look at, you know, you saw it here at Harding Park, the cut line was only nine shots behind the leader. It's not 12 or 15. The, the, the spacing of these players, they're all bunched up, and there's so many good players. The courses are getting longer. And so the opportunities and, and, and the margin of error is just shrinking for him and for other players as well. I think he contends that he win one. Maybe he wins one more. I don't think he gets to 17 in terms of majors. Mark Ziegler, San Diego Union Tribune. Thank you so much for putting up with us. I know that you had a long weekend, hopefully a fun weekend at Harding Park, and we look forward to having you back on Mitch Unfiltered. Thanks so much, Mark. Oh, my pleasure. I'm going to find my way home uh, in the fog now. Golf's first major is in the books. They're going to play seven of them over a 12-month period, including two Masters. So golf nerds like me will be in heaven. And Pac-12 players still threatening a boycott if accommodations are not made. Back on the horn, 
with the president of Zeke's Pizza on the Zeke's Pizza hotline. Here's Dan Black to give us a little update, Dan, on what's going on with the Zeke's Pizza locations these days. Very similar to the last time we talked, patios and dining rooms are open and uh, steady. Takeout and delivery continue to be kind of the prime action, but people are eating out a little bit in the dining room and the patios. Can you give us a sense of the appetite for all of us to go back and sit in restaurants or at least outside in restaurants? Do you get a sense with the numbers that more and more people are more comfortable to do that? It is mixed. I think people are wary for sure. Socially distance and cleaning practices, all the things that is top of mind with everybody and in the headlines is important. People do not want to be in crowds. At least we're not seeing it at Zeke's. While there's people in, nobody's looking for like a jam-packed bar scene or something. So people are coming in as long as they can keep distance. Any trouble, Dan, with COVID-19, with your staff or with uh, customers? Any issues? We've had some employees who have tested positive. We have really strict procedures in place, uh, quite a bit more than is required by law. So if we have any employee who has been exposed or tested positive, we close the restaurant immediately. We deep clean it immediately, and then we do not let people come back to work until they have tested negative. And so... We verify that people are negative before uh, they can come back into work. So by the time we reopen the location, we know that we have a staff that is confirmed negative. We've had a couple of closures, and we've got it down pretty good. So we were closed for three days is all the last time it happened. And so we've had it happen twice. We see it as just a fact of life at this point. And our view is that if we stay safe and strict on it, then uh, even if we have a store closed here and there, we'll be able to keep the whole system open and functioning for the most part rather than having it spread. Tell us about the delivery arm. How's it going? And people still ordering beer, ordering pizza, ordering salads? And Yep, delivery and takeout is still where most of the action is at. People are picnicking in their backyards at home. They're ordering out when they're we're out and about in the park and stuff like that. So there's still a lot of that. People are out being adventurous in the summer in the Northwest. We're doing a lot of growlers still, but we reintroduced crowlers about a month ago and crowlers are a 32 ounce aluminum can basically so you can get a big uh, aluminum can of draft beer from us that are really easy to take on a hike or throw in a cooler or something uh, and they're recyclable and so it's it's a lot easier to, to haul around than a growler so we're, we're selling a lot of beer right now in crowlers so people can be mobile with them do what the levy family does download the zeke's pizza app it's as simple as a couple of clicks and pizza and beer will be at your door we love zeke's pizza we love our partnership with zeke's pizza and it's homegrown in the northwest unfiltered the defendant joseph d'angelo will enter a guilty plea to all charged counts and special circumstances, allegations, and enhancements. As to the murders, the defendant will plead guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder. He will say guilty to the charged offenses, and I admit to the special circumstances, allegations, and enhancements. Well, you heard Scott and I discuss it in our tease segment, the story of Joseph James D'Angelo. He was known to many as the East Area Rapist first and then the original Night Stalker in later years, nicknamed the Golden State Killer. Countless murders, countless rapes, burglaries in the 1970s and 80s in California. And then after years of fruitless investigations and searches, 
crime author Michelle McNamara threw herself into these serial crime clusters and their relationships to one another. She began work on a book entitled All Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. McNamara died tragically before its completion, but thanks in part to our next guest, Paul Haynes, the book was completed. An HBO series was also born, and D'Angelo was finally found and arrested in 2018, now has pled guilty to multiple counts of murders. Here's the man who teamed up with McNamara to essentially blow this thing wide open, Paul Haynes. How are you, Paul? Thanks for being with us. I'm well, thank you. There's so much here, and I'm kind of newish to the story, even though it's an old, old story. Would you mind attempting to summarize the crime's for which D'Angelo was responsible and why, in your estimation, all these years later, the FBI and everyone else failed so miserably at identifying the killer. Was he that good or was the investigative agencies that lacking? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think they were operating at a disadvantage and he had a head start of uh, 15 years. Uh, It wasn't until 1996 that the full scope of his crimes started to take shape. And it was during that period that investigators in Orange County began linking multiple unsolved homicides to one offender via the DNA. Those murders were linked to a double murder in Ventura. They were linked by MO to some uh, double murders in Santa Barbara. And then in 2001, those crimes were linked to the long unsolved East Area Rapist series in Northern California. And that crime, that series had been thought Uh, to be the successor of a series out of Visalia, whose offender was dubbed the Visalia Ransacker. So you have have multiple series that, in hindsight, we know were the work of one individual. And we know that he was a law enforcement officer during uh, most of those crimes, which gave him insights and um, an understanding of how these crimes are investigated that, again, in hindsight, a lot of things make sense that during the period that he was unidentified. I don't know. I think that a good investigator approaches cases like this through the lens of Occam's razor, which is a principle that states, you know, with a set of unexplained phenomena, it's usually the simplest explanation requiring the least steps that turns out to be true. And with this offender, that didn't apply. He was craftier and clever, cleverer than most offenders of this type. All told, you believe what? He was responsible for how many and and what variations of of these crimes? So he was responsible for upwards of 120 burglaries in Central Valley, Visalia, California, from 1973 to 1975. That culminated in an attempted kidnapping of a 15-year-old girl from her bed. When her father intervened, he shot the father to death and fled. Subsequently, he was uh, stopped by investigators staking out a garage that had, uh, of a house that had been, had been prowled, and uh, he shot at uh, the detective that was pursuing him. At that point, the series ended, and six months later, the East Area Rapist series began in Sacramento. And over a period of three years, this offender was responsible for at least 49 sexual assaults, mostly in Sacramento, a couple in Stockton, a few in Davis and Modesto, and then I think about a dozen in the East Bay area. 
Once that series ended, a new series picked up in Santa Barbara, an aborted attack on a couple in September 1979 in Santa Barbara. This couple managed to break free of an intruder that had bound them. The intruder fled. And then after that incident, every individual or couple that this person uh, confronted was murdered by this individual. And so there were two double murders in Santa Barbara. There was one double murder in Ventura. This is in 1979, 1980, 1981, a double murder in Orange County, and then two uh, single lone women that were murdered in their houses in, in Irvine. How many murders all told? 13. Okay. That encompasses what years? 1973 to like 19, what, 86, 87, something like that? 1986 is the last known offense, and that was a uh, 19-year-old girl named Janelle Cruz whose uh, parents were out of town. She'd been left alone in the house, and uh, she was confronted by this individual late one night, raped, and subsequently bludgeoned to death. What do you think then became of him from 1986 to 2018? What kind of life did he lead? And Is it just recognized and accepted that he stopped in 1986, or are there unsolved crimes that potentially he's responsible for in all the years since? The notion that there might be other undetected crimes is not one that's especially exciting to me. There may be a few uh, rapes and certainly burglaries that haven't been formally attributed to him. But given his M.O., there are no other murders that we're aware of that, uh, that he's responsible for. I think the fact that he was 40 years old when he committed his last known offense and the fact that his third daughter was born that year, uh, I'm sure his libido was winding down, as was his, uh, his physical uh, ability and all of those factors can account for the slowdown that you see between 1981 and 1986, and then the subsequent, uh, you know, the the cessation of his criminal activity, as far as we know, beyond that point. Any rhyme or reason to how he chose his victims, Paul? Um, I think uh, he would. I think what he would do is he would target neighborhoods, and so he would go to a neighborhood, and you see this behavior, Visalia where he would burglarize four or five different homes in close proximity to each other, sometimes right next to each other. And so I think that he would target a neighborhood, he would scope out the houses, and he would find the houses that most appealed to him in terms of the occupants and their patterns and how vulnerable they were. And I think he would uh, enter the neighborhood at a given night, and if the opportunity presented himself, that's when he would strike. Was it, uh, was so it, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know that there was any greater like scheme other than than that. I, I guess I'm 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 having a trouble understanding. Was his priority the burglary, or was the priority the physical attacks? Uh, I think the priority was being in control. So entering the house, burglarizing the house, that made him the man of the house. And I think that he had an escalating need for control over other human beings. That's when he shifted from burglar to rapist. And and then ultimately, uh, he shifted from attacking lone women to couples where the man was present. He kept ramping up the level of challenge. A lot of these offenders choose the path of least resistance. That's why a lot of serial offenders target sex workers. they're, They're the easiest, most vulnerable types of victims. This offender liked the challenge. So and that's that what that's what makes him so unique. Uh, and so and so frightening. So explain to me what Michelle was doing, what were you were doing independently, and then how you guys connected, Paul. Sure. So I, I was aware of Michelle via her true crime diary blog. I loved her writing. I loved the types of cases that she profiled. It just seemed inevitable that at some point 
she would find this case. And at the time, I was falling deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of this particular case. And I found myself unemployed, living back home with my parents at like 28. My life was so bleak. And this case allowed me to sort of shut down and focus on one, one thing with a singular purpose for 10, 15 hours a day. Wow. Uh, and it was during that period that I connected with Michelle and she recognized the quality and value of the work that I was doing. In fact, she was doing very similar work and we came up with some of the same suspects or potential suspects. So we were built a rapport very quickly. And over the next two years, we corresponded almost every day. She wrote this piece for Los Angeles Magazine immediately after HarperCollins was interested in, in her book proposal on this case. They bought the book proposal. She hired me as a research collaborator. I moved to L.A. and we were working together from that point until her death in April of 2016. And what was the singular big moment? There must have been an aha moment or wasn't there uh, where you guys looked at each other and you said, we've got this. We've got this person. We know this person is. In a case like this, there are so many aha moments that are ultimately red herrings that each successive aha moment carries less significance and power. I don't think there was ever a really huge aha moment. There were certainly like subsidiary ones because this is a case with, with a very broad scope and a lot of unanswered subsidiary questions. And we resolved a lot of those. It's not the big question of who this person was. Certainly, we were on the right track with the forensic genealogy and that is ultimately what led to this offender's identity. My port of entry was the geographic sequence. This is someone who was living in very specific places at very specific times. And so my feeling was that there weren't a lot of white males born between 1940 and 1960 that lived in these same places at these times. But as it turns out, he wasn't living in Sacramento County while he was offending there. He was living in Auburn and working in Auburn. And when you consider that he was a cop in Auburn and the risk associated with offending there, it makes perfect sense. But we, again, these are things that we only know in hindsight. And then she passes away tragically, what did you say, in 2016, I think? And yeah, it was April, April 2016. April 2016. Obviously difficult emotionally for you and everybody that was around her and everybody that was working on, you know, in some way, shape, or form on this investigative report and book. Tell me about the process of completing the book and what that entailed. How far along were you guys? How far along was she at the time of her passing? Yeah, I think for Michelle, the writing of this book was a vehicle that allowed her unfettered access to people and resources to investigate this case. So I think that it was challenging at times to switch between the investigator and the writer. Um, and there were multiple deadline extensions, which you see uh, covered in I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Uh, and by the time that she, she passed, I would say she was roughly halfway done with, with the book altogether. And then the book comes out. Uh, subsequently, he's identified, he's arrested, and I, I can't even imagine, I'll ask you, I know you've been asked a million times, mm -hmm. what those emotions must have been like, not only for yourself, but what she would have felt the day that he was arrested. Yeah. So we were in Chicago promoting I'll Be Gone in the Dark, Billy Jensen, Patton Oswalt, Gillian Flynn, who wrote the introduction of the book. And uh, we were on stage talking about this book at the very moment, unbeknownst to any of us, authorities in Sacramento were closing in to make an arrest. 
And I learned about it later that night from a source who texted me that he had information that maybe this guy was in custody, but maybe take it with a grain of salt, which I wanted to because I hadn't slept the night before. So I was eager to get to, get to bed and get some sleep. But then half an hour later, I got confirmation that they had made an arrest. And it was a complete and utter surprise because I had no idea that they had anything in the works. Really? So I, I was up all night yet again. I think I got maybe an hour of sleep. And the next day I learned the individual's name. I saw his face. I was paging through articles. I kept seeing Michelle's picture. And that made me very sad. That really buffered the excitement of this arrest for me. And I think that Michelle, um, it's possible she would have felt a, a, a sort of a sense of um, uh, disappointment and emptiness, I guess, when you spend so much time trying to uncover something or, or I mean, it, it, this is analogous to like a, a quest or a conquest. And when you finally fulfill that, there's always a degree of disappointment, particularly when you spend so many years. And I don't know what I hoped for or what expected would materialize, but it, it really hasn't. And I think that, you know, it would have brought a degree of closure to Michelle's drive to identify this person. And I think that she would have been able to kick fully into writer mode at that point. Well, and that, I think it would have surprised her one bit that he was a cop. This well, is a, a theory that we considered all along. Right. When they found him, what did they find? What kind of a man did they find? Did he, did he immediately confess to all these burglaries, all these kidnappings, all these rapes, all these murders? No. They found a man who shut down completely. They found a man who, uh, prior to his arrest, appeared to be fairly robust and strong for his age. Following his arrest, he was motionless, no personality, didn't talk to uh, investigators. In his court appearances, he's played this kind of feeble old man in his plea hearing. He only says four or five words throughout the hearing. Yes, I admit guilty. And he does so in a robotic way that suggests he's not even cogent. And I think he does that or he's doing that as a way of denying the victims the satisfaction of his, him registering them. For, for all the boldness of his crimes, he is the ultimate coward. Why plead guilty then to all these counts? To avoid a death sentence? Yeah. Uh, it, ostensibly, it was to, uh, to avoid a death sentence. Uh, I mean, in the state of California, they don't really execute the death sentence at this point. There's a moratorium on execution, so it's largely symbolic. Uh, I think, I think the, the greater uh, enticement was the conditions he'd be spending the rest of his life in. That's just my theory. Do you, Michelle, and the group get the appropriate amount of credit from the state of California and the authorities for your role in this? Sometimes it's difficult for the agencies to give credit where credit is due, especially when it's not one of them, right? Yeah, I don't think anyone gets the appropriate amount of credit. Um, you know, once, once an arrest is made in a case like this, of this scale you suddenly find people a lot more activated than they had been, especially with a case that it seemed like it had fallen off the official radar for a long time. So everyone wants to, particularly those with a platform, you know, those in leadership positions, it becomes very political. So I think that maybe none of the people that deserve the most credit have gotten that credit. Paul Holes, I, I, would, I would say, is the key figure. It was described as, uh, as the Hail Mary that, that broke this case, and it really was. It was Paul on the eve of his retirement who had the notion of uploading this offender's DNA profile into GEDmatch, 
And that's what ultimately led to his identity. So I think that to the degree that Paul's been celebrated, that's been um, uh, warranted. But, you know, I think there are a lot of other people that that have worked this case that are also not uh, hungry for credit because it was never about that. It was never about that for Michelle. Michelle was not in this to insert herself into the story and to be the person that broke the case. And neither have I. I've just wanted the answer. And I think that was that was Michelle's motivation as well to see that blank, that question mark resolved. Talk more about Paul Holes and his contribution. I read just a snip before you you and I got on the phone together. Explain more in depth his role and how that Hail Mary was caught in the end zone, Paul. Yeah, and it's the interesting thing about Paul. Paul's this great character. He reminds me, if you ever watched Twin Peaks, he reminds me of uh, Agent Dale Cooper a little bit. He's this very kind of small-town, unassuming, seemingly uncorrupted guy who's worked around this really dark stuff for a long time. And I think it haunts him to a degree, but I never saw Paul as, as a jaded or cynical personality. So it's just an interesting contrast between the personality and the work that he does. And he's primarily worked in forensics as a criminalist, uh, but he's dabbled in profiling and detective work. He's kind of like this polymath. And we had been working with the offender's DNA markers for a long time. Michelle had been uploading them periodically into genealogical databases, but typically these databases would surrender only limited information, such as possible country or, or place of origin, yeah. um, possible surnames, uh, or that may have been in the family in the, in the ancestry at one time. But Jed Match specifically identified third cousins which is a distant relation, and that itself requires a lot of work. And I think the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department assigned two or three full-time genealogical researchers, and they started constructing these reverse family trees until they were narrowing it down, winnowing it it down, to ultimately, I think, uh, two or three suspects. And at the end of the list, everyone had been eliminated but Joseph D'Angelo. They began surveilling him. They followed him one day to a Hobby Lobby, he went inside the Hobby Lobby. They swabbed his car door handle, and they got, they got a match. So tell me about Paul Haynes. You were a guy, you just described yourself as a young, what, 27, 28-year-old living with his family yeah, without a that's job. Right. You, you threw your life into this. This became your life, and you did such a great job and such great work, and it's led to books and, as I said, HBO series and all kinds of all yeah. kinds of attention, but not unlike an athlete who has to retire young because that's what athletes do, professional mm-hmm. athletes do. They look at themselves in the mirror and they say, okay, what now? What, what, what next for Paul Haynes? What are you doing with yourself? And will you throw yourself into something similar to this in the future? I, I'm really interested in development at this point and narrative and storytelling. I went to school for film and video and TV, and so that's, that's my, my primary area of interest. I I never intended to surrender 10, 15 years of my life to something like this. If I'd known uh, at the outset that that would be the case, I I may have turned my attention elsewhere. I've spent so many hours of my life just looking at screens that I feel like I I just, I have to turn off the consumption mode at this point, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. I, I think my last question, and maybe it's a silly one and you can you can chastise me for a silly question because I ask a lot of them. If this guy came around instead of in 1973, you said 73 to 86, right? So 13 yeah. years. So if this guy came yeah. around in, let's say, 2003 to 2019 
and did yeah. the, and did the same things and was as shrewd as he was, but we had different technology mm-hmm. and different systems and different way of investigating these mm-hmm. types of serial killers. Would, yeah. would the results have been the same or different, and why? Oh, I feel he would have been caught a lot sooner, particularly with the geographic movement. There's a case, uh, the Center City Rapist out of Philadelphia and then I think Colorado Springs, where there was a series of rapes in Philadelphia that uh, it ended in a murder. The rapist killed one of the victims, and then the series stopped. They had the offender's DNA, but they had no idea where to begin looking. And then a similar series began in Colorado Springs, and uh, that DNA, the DNA of that offender, matched that of the center city rapist in Philadelphia. So they started looking at people, uh, men who had moved from the Philadelphia area to the Colorado Springs area during this window of time. So they had a list of like 24 men, and that's all they needed. That's how they found Troy Graves, who turned out to be the culprit. Uh, So they interviewed all, all of these men, asked each of them for a DNA sample, Troy Graves refused, which is a huge red, red flag in any investigation like this. I think that with this series, he would, have, he would have been caught a lot sooner, particularly now, particularly in this past decade. Everything is under surveillance. It's becoming more and more difficult to get away with this type of crime. And what so fascinates me about this type of crime is that the offenders are random. They are strangers who attack strangers. And so historically, that's been the most difficult kind of crime to solve because it's it's a needle in 20 different haystacks. Yeah. So I think that we have technology now, both in terms of um, uh, data resources, like the, the ones that I've used and um, uh, uh, forensic resources. I mean, the reverse genealogy is, I think, the biggest, I hate the phrase game changer because it's become so trite, but I don't want to just be silent trying to think of a better one. I think it's been the most significant game changer since the advent of DNA itself in the mid to late 80s. We have cases that have been cold for decades and decades since Golden State Killer, since D'Angelo was arrested. I think at least 130 other cold cases have been solved using forensic genealogy. This is huge. The landscape has changed. Really terrific for you to join us. I look forward to reading the book. I'm so glad that Scott Scott Soden, my, my co-host here, turned me on to the story. Uh, terrific work, 15 years worth of work. The, the name of the book is All Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer, and then the subsequent HBO docuseries. Paul, thank you so, so very much for sharing the the story with us, for sharing what you were thinking with us, and I wish you nothing but the best as you move along with your life now. Thank you, Mitch. I appreciate it. What an incredible story of serial murders, rape, burglaries, and a man who beat the system for 45 years, including a chunk of that time as a police officer, Paul Haynes, who helped crack the case all these years later. Time to visit with our old friend Lindsay Schwartz, the CEO of Daniel's Broiler World Class Steakhouses. Lindsay, what's up with Daniel's Broiler these days? Well, we're uh, we're out there fighting the good fight. We've got three restaurants open, as we've discussed before. We're taking advantage of this beautiful weather that we're seeing in the Seattle area right now. We've added as many outside seats as we could at all the restaurants. If you come to Daniel's Lesha, you'll see we've added a completely new patio on the front side. And at Daniel's Lake Union, we have a new patio on the lower floor. So uh, lots of great options to sit outside. And dinner is safe at Daniel's Broiler. You've had no problems with employees, and you guys are taking the extra precautions that we would expect from a world-class steakhouse like Daniel's, right? 
Absolutely. Just like we've been doing for 40 years, we're over and above the required guidelines for safety. We take that very seriously, and uh, we're feeling really good about that. Lindsay, people wouldn't ordinarily think of Daniel's broiler for takeout and delivery, and we should discuss that a little bit more. The other night, we were at our little yacht club area of our neighborhood, and they were carrying their Daniel's broiler packages from the Leshy location. This is something you're doing more and more of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, we're not a pizza delivery restaurant, but there, there's a couple, I think, really great ways to enjoy us. Obviously, what we're known for is a celebration kind of a place. And, and now with, uh, if people are more comfortable celebrating at home, then everything on our menu is available for takeout or delivery. We've got great packaging to preserve the quality. So there's still lots of reasons for, for celebrations, birthdays, anniversaries, and uh, that's a great way to do it. And then we also have some great, what would have been more on our bar menus in the past, burgers and fish sandwiches and fries and clam chowder. And so, you know, just for casual, there's lots of great to-go and delivery options. The Vouv Clicquot deal, still up and running for $40. Tell us about that. Yeah, like I said, we're known as a celebration place. What better way to celebrate than with a bottle of Vouv Clicquot? And since it's our 40th anniversary, we're selling that bottle for $40. It's normally $145. So uh, this is as good a deal as you're going to see anywhere. And uh, I encourage people to take advantage of it for, for the rest of the year. Is that at all restaurants or just the Leshy location? We're doing the $40 just at the Leshy location for now. I, I think maybe come come winter, we may okay. see it at the others. But for the summer, it's just going to be at the Leshy location. There he is, Lindsey Schwartz, Daniel's Broiler for 40 years, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. Episode 103, the Other Stuff segment, three interviews in the books, including the one with the greatest American Winter Olympic athlete of them all, Federal Way. I I don't know why. (laughs) I just think it's funny that we even have that here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. I've told you before, Florida, they they have... They corner the market on weirdness and everything happens in Florida. But I, yeah. I told you, the state of Washington's second. For some reason, a lot of stuff happens in the state of Washington that you wouldn't that you wouldn't think. And this is one of them. The greatest winter Olympian in the history of this in country. The history from of the country way? from Federal Way. Washington. How do you even get well, into speed skating? I guess yet? if it's measured, maybe somebody who knows Olympics better than I do. I don't, I don't claim to know anything about the Winter Olympics and very little about the Summer Olympics. But maybe somebody would say, Mitch, 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 this guy, Phil Mayer. I don't know. I don't know who the... I don't know who the skiers oh, are. Oh wait, was there twins? Yeah, I think they were. They they were. They were from the state of yeah. Washington. Maybe you'd say the U.S. gold medal hockey team. Oh, 1980. Yeah, yeah they were pretty good. He's got the most medals. Yeah. So it's, that's why I say most decorated. Yeah, when you think Federal Way, Washington, you don't necessarily no. think Apollo ice skating. Ono. <laughs> yes. Anyway, other stuff segment. What do you got? What have we missed? There's a lot to, to go over, I would imagine. Yo, Ennis Cespedes yes. inexplicably hit the bricks on August 2nd, just without saying anything to anybody. And then hours later, he was spotted in a mall and informed. that's when he informed his team that he's opting out for COVID reasons. Well, a video has now surfaced of him in a crowded restaurant July 10th dancing with a woman on a closed dance floor. Okay, so floor. this is Lou Williams, the sequel, right? Yes. Lou Williams, who needed to leave the L.A. Clippers, leave yeah. the bubble in Orlando <laughs> right. because he was going to a funeral, was then having chicken wings 
at a strip club. Yeah, oh, to because, go. To go. They were because, to go, he says. Because, because he loves the food <laughs> right. at the strip club. Who doesn't? So this is Joanna Cespedes. The only thing I know about Joanna Cespedes is all of a sudden he didn't show up. He didn't show up to a ball game, and they didn't know why, and they were looking for him. Yeah. And then they went looking for him, and they went to his hotel, and he had checked out of the hotel and just decided oh, – he, he pulled a Ken Griffey Jr. on him. He just, right. he just left. And then right? he's seen taking a selfie or three fans wanted a picture with him at a mall, and he's like, okay, that's probably yeah. out there. I better tell my team I'm, I'm opting out for COVID reasons. But back in July, he didn't look that nervous about COVID because he's in a crowded restaurant <laughs> dancing on a closed dance floor. It wasn't so what do there. we think the real reason is? Or don't we know the who real knows? reason? I mean, who knows? I mean, you have all this <laughs> money. Why, who wants to go to work? Nobody wants to work. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, I'd do it too. <laughs> Yoenna Cespedes. Yes. Uh, our dear friend, the turd Jim Harbaugh, is at it again. Is that his name now? <laughs> I never liked Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> okay. We even did a song, Douchebag Harbaugh style, back on yes. the old radio show. Never liked Jim Harbaugh when he was the coach of the 49ers, khaki pants. I swear Never you, liked him at Michigan. Don't I, like anything about him. I feel like I'm the first one to bring up those crappy khaki pants, and then it just went viral. You were the first person. I feel like I'm, I was- Did you get paid off? I should have. I was. <laughs> I could go back and look through my Twitter. I swear, I was ripping his khakis, and then it just took- Because he wears the ones with the pleats in them, kind of outdated. Yeah. It just, it, I just don't like this yeah, guy. He's pretty unlikable. Yeah. Well, he's the coach of the University of Michigan. Yes. He's getting paid, I think, $8 million a year. He's one of the highest paid college football coaches in America. Good for him. And he, he was on a conference call with the other coaches in the Big Ten. Okay. The same coaches that are probably not going to play in the fall. Yeah. They were all, all the head coaches were on some sort of a conference call last week. And before they got off the phone, he, he criticized Ohio State's head coach – Ryan Day for improperly coaching his players on the field during a time that you're not allowed to coach them. Oh, it's like a dead period where you can't interact Something with them? Something like that, okay. where when they're on the field, you're not allowed to coach them. Okay. And he brought it up on the, on the conference call. Khaki Pants brought it up on the <laughs> conference call, at which time the coach of Ohio State said, why don't you worry about your team and I'll worry about my team. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> and then he got off the phone, as the reports say, and he called his team together and he said, I want to hang 100 on them. Wow. I don't want to just beat them. <laughs> I want to hang 100 on them. Now, the world has found out about this conference call that yeah. Harbaugh is picking a fight with the Ohio State coach, and, and, and maybe he's right about not coaching the players when on the field, but yeah, he's a little sensey-poo. I, if, well, Would you like to know his record against Ohio State? Do you know his record against Ohio State? I believe in five attempts. He gets paid. The Michigan coach gets paid to beat Ohio State. That's right. And the Ohio State coach gets paid to beat Michigan. Right. Yeah, they get paid to have good programs. <laughs> right. Yeah, they want to. They get paid to, have, to win national championships and go to big bowl games. Yes. But make no mistake about it. I remember interviewing when I was doing a show in Washington, D.C. before WTM. I got there. You got it. Yeah. I remember interviewing John Cooper, I oh, think Oh, sure, John Cooper, yeah. Head and coach I remember of Ohio State. asking him, uh, I was filling in for somebody, and I remember asking him the question. <laughs> I said, And I was like 23 years old, and I said, Coach Cooper, I'm going to give you a choice. Nine and one, you finish fourth in the country. You go to a bowl game. You win the bowl game. You finish third in the country. And your one loss is to Michigan, 
or six and four, you finish out of the top 25, you lose the bowl game, and you beat Michigan. Yeah. What's better for you? And he said, I'll take the second one every single day. Is that, is that right? Yes. Six and four, but you beat Michigan? He wants to beat Michigan. Yikes. That's how important that game is. Okay. Okay. Douchebag Harbaugh style. Yeah. Oh, and five. Yeah. And four of those five, I believe, if you go back to the score in the games, not close. Not very close. Couldn't beat Urban Meyer. Didn't beat this guy, Ryan. I don't even know who Ryan Day is. He's the new coach of Ohio if State. If you would have said, who's the head coach of Ohio State? You would have got it wrong. I would have said Urban Meyer. Well, <laughs> here's, a, here's, here's what would have been a good guess. I don't know who it is, but I bet they beat Michigan. <laughs> right. And you'd be right about that. He's lost every single game, and he's making $8 million a year coaching yeah. the Wolverines. Well, I can't wait. Just to, telling you. I can't wait to see that game. I can't wait now. Wait, it's not happening. Great. We'll never see it. I can't <laughs> no, wait to see, see it in April. You'll see it, you'll see it in April. <laughs> in April, yes. Anyway, there's your, there's your Coach Harbaugh update. This is kind of a bummer, but I think people need to know XLA Angels employee Eric K has been charged with distributing fentanyl yeah. in connection with the pitcher Tyler Skaggs' death. And prosecutors say they have text messages to prove it. So he looks like this employee's in a little trouble. And it wasn't just to, to Tyler that he was distributing it to and he was doing it at work. And it looks like this is not going to be good for that employee. This is Tyler Skaggs, the... Angels pitcher that was found last season in his hotel in his room. hotel room having overdosed, right? Yeah, in South Lake, Texas, and it was July of two thousand a year ago. That whole story is a terrible, terrible story. It's bad, and it's just going to get worse for this employee who clearly wasn't trying to kill him, and you know was probably just doing what a, a rich guy was asking me to do. I'm yeah. trying to be, be cool with them. Yeah, but yeah, who knows? Fentanyl is bad stuff. Phil Mickelson's in the news, Hot Shot Scott, and he did not win the PGA Championship over the weekend at Harding Park. But what he did do is something that a lot of people in, in the world of golf have, has been waiting for, have been waiting for. Okay. And that is he got in the TV tower at 18 and just did golf from a broadcasting perspective for the first time really ever. Really ever? Yeah. Everybody has been saying... That he's the next Tony Romo of golf. Oh, gotcha. He's the next Johnny Miller. You don't watch golf. I do. But people in our audience will understand. Everybody's been saying when Phil Mickelson's ready to hang him up, which we don't know when that is because he could play on the Champions Tour, Senior Tour, and win a ton if he wanted to. Yeah, and I'll rent him my house out at Boeing there for the go, weekend. For yeah. the weekend. He can come win <laughs> Boeing and stay at your house. Everybody's been wondering, will Phil Mickelson contemplate instead of playing the Champions Tour because that's kind of beneath him? Is Tiger Woods really going to play the right. Champions Tour? Instead of doing all that, sign a big contract with either CBS or NBC and become the preeminent golf announcer. Wow. Everybody has just assumed because of his personality and his social media presence and his fireside chats with Phil and his humor that he'd make a great broadcaster. Okay. And so on Saturday, after the third round of the PGA Championship, after his third round, he was done real early because he's not real con- in contention he went up and he sat with jim nance and nick faldo and he did golf for an hour and a half and what's the verdict i don't want to tell you i liked it because i don't like him at all yeah um but it was really good is that right (laughs) he's gonna ruin your life if he becomes a regular on every really good really i mean there were some awkward moments you know, he was he, he took some time to get his feet wet and really get get into the flow and the rhythm of the broadcast. Yeah. And there was some tension between him and Nick Faldo, which I kind of like because well, I don't like Nick Faldo. But either. wait a minute. Isn't there tension with Nick Faldo and everybody? Isn't he kind of prickly? Yeah, a little bit. OK, but, I, thought but I remember people don't like Nick Faldo anymore and what have you. And Mickelson came on telling jokes and wow. making people laugh. And he was personable and he was good with the golf and he was really good. 
He was really good. He's going to convert I, I, you. I think he, he, he fueled everybody's desire that somebody throw a whole bunch of money at him to make it worth his while. And it's going to take a lot. This guy's, this guy's worth probably $500 million. I don't know. I mean, he's he's one of the highest paid athletes in the yeah. world for a lot of years running. So it's going to take a lot of money. But we saw how much Tony Romo got. Right. It looks like if he wants to become a broadcaster, that he is going to become the face and the voice, which is going to make me miserable <laughs> week after week. Don't forget, when I leave here, I'm going to text my friend who was Tony Romo's talent coach. Yeah. My, his broadcasting coach. I'm going to say, you better call Phil. Oh, Everything I hear is horn. good. Go go make that money big, from Phil. Big, 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 big. There will be a huge – when he says, if he ever says, okay, guys, I want to be a broadcaster, I'm going to skip the seniors tour. When he says that, there is going to be a bidding war between NBC and CBS like nobody's business. Wow, that good, huh? Oh, well, they are the two – Well, I mean, he, he was two, that good where there's going to be a bidding well, war. everybody's going to want him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A lot, lot of good insights because he's – Plays with the these one guys thing or? he didn't do, I will pick. I will pick one part. He, he was not critical of players, and a lot of those guys have trouble being critical of players. Right. Well, I mean, so he's going to have to have a little more edge to him. He's going to need to be a little edgier in terms of being willing to say that was a bad shot or that was a bad decision or he can't make that mistake yeah. and not worry about what he is going to say to him when I come down off the tower. That was what was great about Johnny Miller the great Johnny Miller on NBC for all those years, although he toned it down at the end. He came right out when nobody was doing it. And it was like, that guy choked. Oh, really? He choked. I mean, he was willing to throw some stones. Well, And, and people kind of, people, the viewers kind of gravitated towards that. To be fair to Phil, he still looks at those guys as his peers. Correct. Right? Correct. So when, maybe when he's removed from the tour, he's not in locker rooms maybe. or whatever, you know, maybe. parties. Maybe. Maybe he'll be a little easier for him. It's to not be. easy to do. Yeah, right. I mean, especially now because he's going to go play in a tournament, right, next weekend or whenever. He's going to see these guys, and they're going to hear that he ripped them. So um, he's going to convert you to a fan. It's about time it happened. Here it is. <laughs> University of Georgia students are being asked to mask up in more ways than one when they return to campus. I don't know if you saw this story. The University Health Center at UGA is out with their COVID-19 considerations, and wearing a mask while making the two-backed monster with a partner is on the list. So if you plan on hooking up, can you picture two packs together? If you plan on hooking up, that's, <laughs> if you, they suggest you wear a mask. And they also suggest that if you partake in touchy selfie, you might want to wash your hands right after for 20 seconds in warm water. They're also suggesting that, that that may even be a better option than hooking up with somebody with a mask on. So uh, you, your son might get these same guidelines when he goes to the <laughs> University of Washington. So I'll go ahead and email him this. Well, that's like saying that the uh, the Oakland Athletics and the Houston Astros on Sunday, yeah. they, or is it Saturday? Saturday or Sunday, they got into a rhubarb. Did you hear that? Did you see that? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. the one guy for the A's... Normally, it's the team throwing out the Astros. This time, it was the Astros throwing out the A's. Yeah. The one guy got hit twice, and on the second time, he was going down the first baseline to first base, and they got he started shouting into the dugout, and before you know it, we had a, a full-fledged brouhaha on our hands. Yeah. I didn't see anybody put their mask on before they go out <laughs> right. and start throwing haymakers. Right, right. So Haymakers come first. Hey, look. If you're going to fight, if we're going to have a rhubarb, yeah. you better put your mask on because that's not social distancing. <laughs> My favorite part about the story is I was thinking when I was in college, I didn't need the administration to suggest that I partake in that behavior <laughs> when I was in the dorms. I had that covered. God, thank you for the suggestion, oh, though, God. college. But wearing a mask out at a bar might be cool because then you could hide from like maybe your ex you don't want to see. And for, in your case, the mask would cover up a lot of the face. You might have a better shot of getting a woman back in the Syracuse days, you know? <laughs> 
not the worst idea. I mean, you know, you could put it you could get a little higher, like right above, like just under the eyes, you know. But then you got to keep it on the whole time because if you surprise her with that. <laughs> Let I me mean, know when you're finished. Okay, go ahead. My headsets aren't working. I haven't heard anything you've said in the last 15 Did you say something to me? <laughs> no, I didn't. Go ahead. You're up. Tom Cruise ever have any problems? <laughs> That's um, true. <laughs> Brad Pitt. Oh, dear. Do you know the names Fred and Tim Williams, Hotshot Scott? I think I do because I discover them like everyone else on the same day. The hottest names in the world, the yeah. hottest names of YouTube right now are 21-year-old twins Fred and Tim Williams. Tell everybody in our audience who don't know yet who Fred and Tim, Tim Williams are. Who are they, Hotshot Scott? Well, they're one of many who do what's called reaction videos. They have a channel where they react to music or they react to different things. Is this what it takes to become famous? I honestly had the idea that Piper and I should do a reaction video. Like, uh, and then she plays me a song that I've never heard that's a new one. Yeah. And I talk about it and then I'll yeah. play her like a Zeppelin song. And well, I actually had that idea because reaction videos are huge out there. Too late. It is too late. Everything's too late, right? So it's these two twins right. that are 16, I want to say. Right. And they react to songs they've never heard before. And it's funny to think no one's heard the song In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. I think they're 20. Are they 21 year olds or are they 16? Oh, I, I, I thought they, they looked young. I thought they okay. were teens. Anyway, okay. they're young guys. Young guys. Never heard of Phil Collins. Never. Yeah. Never heard the song in the air tonight. Somebody sent me a, a note to to look at this video, a link, and it was these two guys hearing Karen Carpenter. <laughs> right? That's, isn't that funny to think they never the first heard time, <laughs> and they were enjoying it. It had a little of the uh, was it Tommy Boy with that scene with Chris Farley and David Spade in the car, right? Where something comes on, I don't remember. Was it was it Carpenter's? Maybe it was Carpenter's. It was. Don't you remember you told me you love me, babe? Whatever that one's okay, called. Yeah. And, they, and one of them said, you can turn it. No, no. Fine by me. Like, yeah, I, I'm I cool. I don't want to watch it. I like and it. And like 10 seconds later, they're both <laughs> belting it out and crying. And right? Yeah. yeah. Right. It's kind of got that feel to it. But these guys apparently yeah. listen to old music that you and I, Sinatra, yeah. Phil Collins, in this case, the Carpenters. And they, do they like everything or do they, do they not like something? I've only watched a few. Did they like the Phil Collins one? Yeah. They, they, the whole thing was they couldn't believe... You know in the song In the Air Tonight where the, the drum thing comes in? Dun, 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 dun. Right. Like three minutes into the song, so they didn't right. see it coming. Right. They couldn't believe there, there, that would happen three minutes into a song. It just yeah. kind of blew their minds. But yeah, they ended up loving and it. And so how many people are now watching these guys? Oh, are you, you, you don't Millions? Yeah, it's millions. <laughs> these no. Guys, no. Are they, can they make any money, these guys? How does it work? Well, it's funny. I was, did a lot of math on Friday. <laughs> How does it work? I think it's, uh, i got to figure this out here. It's You get a certain amount per 1,000 views. So YouTube just pays you? Yes. So okay. I, I, it's, it's between 3 and $5 for 1,000 views of your video. Okay. So you can kind of do the math if you get a million views. Right, you can sort of figure it out. So yeah, you, you paid. Everybody. The, Every single person who puts a video on YouTube... Gets this money from YouTube if they get the amount of views. I think there's a you don't stipulation. Have to do so you have to have a relationship. You have to have a relationship with an advertiser first. That You can do that too. That's part of it. Okay. I'm not sure how that all works. Like okay. You can throw commercials in your video. Okay. But I told you, I think I, I may have texted you. I was looking around. In 2018, a seven-year-old made $22 million on YouTube. A seven-year-old. I'm not joking. Come you can on. look it up. He, he started a channel of reviewing toys. He, he would just buy these toys. He'd review them. Yeah. Okay. He made $22 million Come on. In 2018. At seven. Yes. 
So I was doing, I'm like, and we're doing this Fakakta podcast for 12 people. And, and, <laughs> at our meeting, I said, we gotta, we gotta figure out a way to get on YouTube. We work a lot harder than I these know. twins do. It's crazy. Well, All they do is put headsets on and listen to a song and then right. talk about it. By the way, we prepare for this thing. Right. We have meetings at Marymore Park. <laughs> right. we, they just, they just act excited about a song that someone else wrote. I know. I don't know. It's crazy. I, I watched. There's, there's z- almost <laughs> zero effort in that thing. You'll be happy to and know. You're telling me they're going to make millions and millions of dollars? They could, yeah. I'm sitting here interviewing Apollo Ono, sweating my ass right, off, working for hard. 35 minutes so that 12 people enjoy Federal Way product Apollo Ono. I watch. And these guys <laughs> I know. at 16 years old are <laughs> listening to Karen Carpenter and making millions of dollars, and that nine-year, seven-year-old's making 20. He made 22 really? million in 2018. And by the way, no, number you're going to you're going to hate up. this. I give up. I, well, I, that was my opinion. I thought that Friday. I told my my wife, I'm like, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Jake Paul, that dickhead whose house was raided by the FBI. This is the guy that's fighting? $21.5 million in 2018 off YouTube. Just off YouTube. Okay, that's not my issue. Oh, that's uh, you're, my you're issue. Not, you're not following me. You're not following me. My issue is not that it's just off YouTube. If Jake Paul is doing something absolutely brilliant and it's taking him a lot of time no. and it's taking a lot of people and effort and oh. there's a team and no, he's working hard and he's making a bunch of money on YouTube, that's fine. The issue is not YouTube for me. The issue is this feels like people are not, you know, it's just it's a simple, let's play Karen Carpenter, put our headsets on, yeah. videotape our, our reaction, put it on YouTube, bam. And now we're going to go out for seven, for six days, and we'll do it again next week. For years, I've been watching this channel called Lost in Vegas. I don't know why I'm plugging them. But I was curious. <laughs> it's these, these two guys who, who aren't really familiar with rock music. So they, they hear songs for the first time, a lot of stuff I like, like Pearl Jam yeah, and all that. Yeah. And they react. And yeah. I, I always – but they're, they're musicians, so they kind of appreciate it a little more. And they give their honest opinions, some stuff yeah. they don't yeah. – they have over a million subscribers. I just went to look because I was like, well, I wonder oh what the guys God. I want. A million subscribers. And they have – a thousand videos and you get monetized on all of them some of them have half a million views some have 800 all right some but again how does it work with other people's music isn't that copy i don't, I don't know. know i don't know how any of it works and no. it drives me nuts <laughs> there's a gold mine of money on youtube and oh, i get none of it so i don't know how any of it works anyway seven-year-old 22 million who knows what he made in 2019 <laughs> we'll probably look it up he's gonna be retired by 11 this kid <laughs> It's going to be living next to your mom down in Florida at 11. Oh, gosh. All right. I got one more. Yeah. Yeah. Simon Cowell, he broke his back. I don't know if you saw that. I hope he gets better soon. He broke his back on an electric bicycle. Have you seen these things? No, but I I know that he got himself hurt. They're kind of, they they go kind of fast, these electric bicycles. And it seems very anti-American to me, by the way. Electric Electric bicycles. So you don't, you don't pedal. Well, you can pedal, but if you need a little help going up a hill, you just. Wouldn't an electric bicycle be. A motorcycle? (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Don't we have motorcycles? What do we need that for? That's right. All right. Rest in peace to Kamala, the Ugandan giant. I don't know who that is. Big part of my childhood. He was in the WWF. Yeah. He was. uh, Okay. He had some troubles towards the end. I can't move my screen for some reason. Yeah. Um, he had diabetes and he lost his feet and he was a truck driver, but he was a great character in the WWF when I was okay. a kid. He worked in peace, worked with Hogan a lot. And yeah. he was, I mean, he had the action fit. He had it all. He was a big name, but he had a tough life. So rest in peace to Jim Harris. I have put my glasses on because I think there's one more story. Isn't there? Oh, there should be one more story. Well, there was supposed to be, but I didn't hear from. Oh, I did. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, save it then. There's supposed, there supposed to be one more story, and I'm armed with the competition of Steve versus Scott. I'm ready to go. Well, I'm not. <laughs> Since when do you not have a final story? Oh, I didn't you say I didn't, always have a I didn't final say story. I didn't have a final story, but it's not that one. 
Oh, I sent you the you final did. story. And when I prepared and that, I, I forgot. And I sent Steve the final. We decided on episode 10, whatever it was, 102, 102P, that we needed to have a little well, writing competition. Okay, sit on his jokes, and I will... I will. That'll be for 103P? Yeah, 103P will so do So for it. only the patrons are going to hear the competition? Well, we can say we do it for a okay. week. I'll have a whole week to write. He, right. he can send you better so ones, you don't, So sure I don't, I, I don't have to put my glasses on? No, you don't. I was going to tell you about the... You fir- were challenged, and, and now... Okay. Completely forgot about it. But okay. I, I'm not, I even I'm not sent you the story. I know. I know. Yeah. Okay. I, Bill Maher talked about that story too. Did he really? He did. Okay. So, so I want to make I, sure that my jokes don't double up with his. You know. <laughs> French baker is sw- switching up her bread recipe by using wheat fertilized with female urine harvested from public restrooms. You see this story? Making she's making bread with urine. From public restrooms. From public restrooms. That's that's well, because that's a real delicacy. It, <laughs> the female urine from private homes. Right, not as good. No, we all know that. No, that's that's amateur stuff. And you're thinking, why? If what? you're gonna go with a female urine, you gotta go from from a female urine with public restrooms. She says urine is a great fertilizer, and self-proclaimed eco-feminist. Louise Raguay, she says she wants to break the taboos over excrement and create a sustainable food cycle. According to a new study, yeah. some 29 million loaves of urine-utilized bread could be baked daily, saving farmers 703 tons of nitrogen employed in artificial fertilizers per day. So she's doing it you know, for the good of the planet. <laughs> for the good of the planet. That's, that's, that's really... Whose urine... So she's not using her own urine. She's using... Is she... Using it, your own is gauche. Okay. You can't do that. If she's using urine from a public restroom, is she standing outside the outside the stall saying, hey, can you pee in this cup? We want to use it. How is she acquiring and how is she getting consent to acquire the urine from different women in a public restroom? This sounds like a guess on 103P. Okay. Let's get her. I think you have a lot of questions that need, need to be answered. Is she in France or is she in America? Uh, that's a good question. I don't you know. You said for, French she's baker. She's a French baker. I okay. assume she's in France. Is that all there is to the story? Well, I mean, who knew that April showers do, in fact, bring Mayflowers? <laughs> I don't think that pea-flavored bread will catch on. I mean, we already have Subway. Oh. No sponsorship from them. No, I just ruined that. Sorry. <laughs> if I ate that and no one told me, I'd be pissed. Uh. Wait a second. I thought we already had pea bread. <laughs> Some advice? You may want to steer clear of this bakery's sticky buns. Oh, That's it. God. All right, I will. I'm in the competition. Don't I will. I think you're. You're. You think run, I'm, I'm I think you're out. running scared. I sent you guys the story. Yeah. He sent me his. He did his homework. He did his homework. Well, that's why I went to submission. He went to UW. You know. And the two of you were supposed to go mano a mano. We were going to let the audience decide who's the better writer of the uh, of the tidbits following the story. Okay. Well, now we, now we have some some build up. It's like he and I are face to face at the weigh in. Yeah, you know, a little pushing and shoving. Yeah, now you can't wait to see. I was what's hoping some happen. scuffle would break out at Marymore Park, but nothing happened. Well, I mean, <laughs> look at the kid. I mean, what's you know? I'm going to push him away, like you know. He he drove. He he rode 50 miles today on his bicycle. He's a maniac. Well, that's 50 wh- miles. Why do you think you wanted me to Marymore? I told him those are his people. He feels comfortable around. Other- <laughs> I was disappointed when he got out of a car. I know. It's like, what are you doing getting out of a car? Were you supposed to jog here? That's right. I picture him running everywhere. Or swim here or right. something? The triathlon his way yeah. over here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll, I will have them. Do you want them for the P or do you want them for a week from now? Whatever you guys decide. Okay. All right. I'll be in touch. All right. All right. Episode 103. Thanks to Apollo Ono in the books.